0: Welcome to the cast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm your host Jeff, better known as Brynaby Fish, and I'm your other host Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 164th episode of the Nauticast, titled Last of the Giants, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Jon 2, in which Jon Snow gets some cool facial scars, sings some songs, is accused of treason, and is saved by execution with uh, sex. Well, this, this chapter just runs the gamut of plot events that can happen to Jon Snow, doesn't it?
1: Everything you would love and hate and love to hate and hate to love, it's all here. And we're uh, very happy to be joined for this episode by our returning guest, came on for another John chapter back in Clash of Kings and is one of the hosts of the Boiled Leather Audio Hour. Please welcome back to the Nauticast, Stefan Sasse. Thank you so much for coming on.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you back. Coming for another John chapter here, which is great because you came on for Clash of Kings John 7, which was an amazing time. And I think this chapter will even succeed that amazing testament to our brilliance and and, and your brilliance as well, Stefan. So uh, no, I'm kidding. It's, it's going to be fun to have you back and uh, we're looking forward to this episode and doing it with you. So as always, this episode is brought to you by our not a small council, our Hand of the King Wolfman, Zach. Grand Master Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards. Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark M. Sir Keith J., Master Whispers. Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws. Archmaster June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes. Ragged Michael, War of the North. Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone. Scarlet, the elaborate Woman and Mistress Whispers. Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War of the West. Harold, the Golden Tooth, Master of the Banefort and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the Jim that was promised. Lord Jake Assisted. To the head of the king, Lady Zine of Lyrium, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dan, Prince Breaker Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Kelly, Warden of the East, Bishops of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Sugar Tits Dent, the Trug Delight Warrior, Laura Pension for Nostalgia, Queer, Alec, Queer Alex, Beyonce's Favorite Stand, Harold of Sherbra, and Bachelor Chromatica, Exalter, Plaque Lives, and Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander, of the Thadies, and General Dems and the Nodicast, Non Binary, Not an Army, Haldover, The Way for Tee Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Varp, the Avort, Queen of Pencils, the Eraser in the first draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devity, Devity of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraits of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kings, Butter Paints, Make of Drawings, and the Te- Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logus, Bloody Scorpion of the Field, Defender of the Letter of Kim, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Faiths, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, surveyor chief of parties in the frozen wastes lord peter grave rob stark the cadaver king and horror of Heron hall hold up the holder of cups sir tim the knight who is guided by voices lord nick Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Earth Day, and Prince Rigar, and Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part two, Lady Anna, the Lovey Castellan, Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf, and the Pillar of Autumn, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri State, Squire Matt S, Future Matt S, the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms. Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Lady Iridane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Words of the South, the Patriot of Free Wheeling Bisexuals. Lady Jimisa, she who suggests the coconuts migrate. Lord Christopher of Arido, official ice magic deliver the valiant, pungent, reindeer king, keeper of feisty pants, and prince consort to his ginger, sweet love queen Anna. Lord Sir Septon Brothers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice, Lord of the Kingswood, and Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Anonymous II, Lord Tyler, the Prince that promises to wait patiently for the Winds of Winter, Lord DB, Sister Winter, hopeful, romantic, and unrepentant shipper, Lord Monsef, and the severed head of a Targaryen prince rotting on the council walls. Thank you to all of our Not a Small counselors. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler wing, as he said, every episode will potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three decade of novels, histories, interviews, the windsor sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and
1: everything. Our question this week comes from Joe Snow, King of the Metro North, the Small Council patron, who asks... Wanted to send a question that you guys can hopefully answer before a John chapter. Going off the throne show ending, which I believe is how a song of ice and fire will end the Danny John stories, John becoming a queen slayer and putting a dagger into the heart of Danny before she sits the Iron Throne. What POV chapter do you think we'll get on John plunging the dagger? We got a run through of John's mindset when he is set to assassinate Mance, or will we see this from Danny's POV, or even a third party like Bran working into Drogon just long enough to keep John alive? Which POV do you guys think it'll be? Love the podcast, guys, and keep up the excellent work. That's a very interesting question. Uh, I'll turn it over to our guest first. Stefan, what do you think of that? Who, if we get a, that John Danny assassination moment in the books, whose eyes do you think we'll see it through?
2: If this happens the way it does in the show, only John's point of view character makes any sense to me. This is essentially what we get in the show as well, by the way. We need to see through his eyes why he makes that decision, why he perceives Danny to become a threat. We also vitally need his reactions, and a Danny chapter would necessarily end before that. Uh, also, what would Danny give us here? If this plays out as it does in the show, the scene in which she calls on the unsullied to conquer the world would be her last POV chapter, I think. No other POV besides these two makes any sense. It's an incredibly intimate moment, and you need them for it. This isn't something one watches from a distance.
0: Hmm. I think it's an interesting perspective, but I'm going to disagree with you, Stefan. I think it's going to be from Danny's point of view. When we talk about character point of view deaths in A Song of Ice and Fire, the ones we have are Ned Stark, Catelyn Stark, not Erihota, Aries Oakheart, Quentin Martell, right? Am I missing anyone here besides the the prologue and epilogue point of view characters? I, I, I think when we think about like point of view deaths, Ned Stark and Ares O'Cart occur from a different point of view, namely from Arya and then from Arianne Martell. What I think for the major character deaths like Catlin's, though, it had to occur from her point of view, and the same thing had to come from Quentin's. Although Quentin so doesn't actually die in his chapter, he all but dies in his chapter. I think it's important to get Danny's perspective before uh, when she's actually assassinated. I think if we get it from John's perspective, the one thing I would say is that it would be a lot more devastating to have Danny think that she is in, on the top of the world and about to go and conquer and do great things and then to have her brought suddenly short. I also kind of wonder about the optics of John being the point of view from that perspective, especially since you can also have him relate his motivations in the chapter after that final Dan- Daenerys Targaryen point of view chapter which chronicles her death. So I, I think you could I, I think it should it should be from Danny's point of view. Again, George can go I, any possible way he can choose. But I, I'm curious, Emmett, what do you think? Who's going to be the point of view for that climactic scene provided that we get a dream of spring?
1: I think you both make good points. I, th- I think I lean towards John in part because we're also going to have the Jamie Cersei assassination scene that that the show didn't do, but I'm, I'm almost 100% convinced is going to happen in the books. And that... I think we might see from Cersei's POV because that'll be the culmination of the Valonqar stuff and we might get her realizing at the last moment she was wrong all along about who the brother was. And I wonder if Jon and Dany might be the flip in terms of perspective of these two situations where you have uh, male characters killing their lovers I think we, we might get the perspective of the person being killed with one of them with Jamie and Cersei, and then the perspective of the one doing the killing with John and Danny. And I think, I think Stefan's argument makes sense that the last Danny chapter we will see is her kind of exulting in her victory and planning to go forward. I think there could be a lot of uh, drama, and then cutting from that a little later to a John chapter where it all goes down. So thank you so much, Joe Snow, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we must answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or a higher-level patron over at patreon.com slash A-S-O-I-A-F where you can also get show notes, merch, access to the Nada Slack, weekly minisodes, shout outs at the start and end of every episode, and bonus episodes, like our recently released episode, Mistakes Were Made, in which Jeff and I had an Oxford-style debate over who was really at fault with regards to the Battle of the Fords and how that turned out. Who was at fault? Robb Stark or Edmure Tully? I
0: was right, of course, but Jeff was allowed to make an argument as well. I believe the consensus will be from our listeners that I was the one who was actually correct. That it was actually Edgar who was one hundred percent justified, and Rob Stark who was one hundred percent not justified in that. Now, I think it was it was a rollicking good time, and I had so much fun doing that with you, sir. And I think you know it's it's just fun just to to rehash the debate that you know stefan i was the person who convinced me originally of this perspective way back in the year 2013 uh when i still had a 56k modem no i actually had you know cable internet at that point in time in my life but yeah and again you could find that episode along with 40 other patreon only episodes available for all of our five dollar above patrons over at patreon.com forward slash a s o i a f no, as a quick aside, this this is so
2: awkward because I'm embarrassed about this essay because I completely refudiated it by um, by now. What? Uh, I argued in my original essay uh, that I think um, Ed, Edmure is basically blameless, you know, and I started this discussion that Rob didn't brief him properly uh, but Stephen Atwell uh, took me apart so thoroughly that I just had to concede defeat
0: <laughs> and this is
2: always coming up like this is the, the one essay that people are constantly talking to me about and are arguing, yeah, I read this essay of yours but I don't agree and I am always like yeah I don't agree either <laughs> so, um that's this is great. done people uh, god damn I'm officially damn it, renouncing
0: it. that oh my god I'm gonna send you a copy of the episode and I'm gonna have you renounce your run, renunciation so we're just gonna go full oh. circle all the way back so oh man well I'm just I'm devastated how am I supposed to do this episode oh that's right we're doing Jon Snow something completely different but that's all good and stuff so Enough about Patreon. If you love to listen to us talk about some of these more meta topics, I think it'll have a lot of fun listening to that episode. So we last checked in with Jon Snow. He witnessed the wildling host up close and got into Mance Raider's good favor. Let's find out how the saddest boy in all of Westeros is doing north of the ball in this synopsis of A Storm of Swords, Jon 2. Big enough for you, Snowflake speckled Tormund's broad face melting in his hair and beard. Well, I just don't think there's quite a chapter open in A Song of Ice and Fire like A Storm of Swords John 2. Usually it's poetry, a character moment, something thematic for the character in question. But John 2 opens with essentially a dick joke. George R.R. R. Martin is the American Tolkien. But it's not actually dicks here, not, not yet at least. It's giants riding gigantic mammoths, moving stormtrooper style through the wilderness. It's a terrifying sight for John and Ghost. Mounted, John counts the giants up to 50 and then realizes that there are actually hundreds of giants. In old Nan stories, giants were outsized men who lived in colossal castles, fought with huge swords, and walked about in boots a boy could hide in. These were something else, more bear-like than human, and as woolly as the mammoths they rode. Seated, it was hard to say how big they truly were. Ten feet tall, maybe? Or or twelve, John thought. Maybe fourteen, but no taller. Their slop- their sloping chests might have passed for those of men, but their arms hung down far too low, and their lower torsos looked half again as wide as their upper. Their legs were shorter than their arms, but very thick, and they wore no boots at all. Their feet were broad, splayed things hard and horny and black. Necklace, their huge, heavy heads thrust forward from between their shoulder blades, and their faces were squashed and brutal. Rat's eyes, no larger than beads, were almost lost within the folds of horny flesh, but they snuffed constantly, smelling as much as they saw." It's a lot of like horny talk there, but I think it's great. It's just a great description of these fantastical creatures and George knocks it out of the park. John realizes that the giants are not wearing clothes. It's actually hair and they stank bad or, or maybe that was the mammoths who stank so much. John tries to see if they carry sores, but as he observes, they're only carrying giant clubs with them. An older giant rides up, and Tormund yells at him in a language John doesn't understand. The giant laughs and says something back to Tormund. John asks whether the giant dude was their king. Nah, the, the giants don't have kings, bro. But John can kneel to him if he wants. Okay, well, what were you all talking about? <laughs> I asked him if that was his father. He was forkin'. They looked so much alike, except his father had a better smell. And, and what did he say to you? Tormund Thunderfist cracked a gap tooth smile. He asked me if that was my daughter riding there beside me with her smooth pink cheeks. The wildling shook snow from his arm and turned his horse about. It may be he never saw a man without a beard before. Come, we start back. Man's grow sore wroth when I'm not found in my accustomed place. John follows Torment back and while they ride, John asks whether Tormin really killed a giant. Well he absolutely surely did. Absolutely. It was winter, and he needed a place to stay warm or he'd die in the snow. So he cut his way into the giant's belly, crawled in, and went to sleep until spring. But when the giant woke up, she thought Torment was his baby, so she suckled Torment for three months, which is a wild fucking story, Torment. Anyways, John is curious about some of Torment's titles the hornblower bit, Meet King of Ruddy Hall, Husband to Bears, Father of Hosts. What about those titles, Torment? What John is really asking is whether the wildlings have the horn of Jorman, but he figures he can get the answer if it looks like it's just one little thing he's asking him, it's a bunch of things he's asking after. Now, Tormund seems a touch annoyed slash suspicious by all of John's curiosity, and then tells the tale of how he got drunk and decided he wanted to go do a sex with this woman he fancied. You know, the one, the woman with a fiery temper. So he went to her. She put up a fight, and then he carried the woman home. They fought some more, and then Tormund woke up all bruised and bloody with half of his dick bitten off, and found a bear pelt on his floor and the wildlings talked about a bald bear in the woods a- again we are in some wild story territory with torment giants bane anyways john does the night's watch castrate you when you arrive at the wall John's like pretty outraged by this and says no absolutely not okay so then why john are you refusing egret's advances everyone knows that she's into john something fierce it's too bloody plain thought john and it seems that half the column has seen it He studied the falling snow, so Torrin might not see him redden. I am a man of the night's watch, he reminded himself. So why did he feel like some blushing maid? You see, John was around Egret most days and nights. Mance put John into Tormen's band, and every night Egret slept next to John, and even draped herself over John one night. John finds Egret warming him, and also heating up his nether regions too. John suspects that Egret wants more than warmth, which is really kind of a head scratch. Like, oh really, John? What gave that away? Kind of moment. Because Ygritte, but Egret keeps, but Ygritte keeps persisting, saying that she, they should go swim naked in an icy river together. But John pretends to hear Tormund calling him away. The wildlings seemed to think Igrit a great beauty because of her hair. Red hair was rare among the free folk, and those who had had it were said to be kissed by fire, which was supposed to be lucky. Lucky it might be, and red it certainly was, but Igrit's hair was such a tangle that John was tempted to ask if she only brushed it at the changing of the seasons. At a lord's court, the girl could never be considered anything but common, he knew. She had a round, peasant face, a pug nose, and slightly crooked teeth, and her eyes were too far apart. John had noticed all of that the first time he'd seen her when his dirk had been in her throat. Lately, though, he was noticing some other things, too. When she grinned, the crooked teeth didn't seem to matter. And maybe her eyes were too far apart, but they were a pretty blue-gray color and lively as any eyes he knew. Sometimes she sang in a low, husky voice that stirred him. And sometimes by the cook fire when she sat hugging her knees with the flames walking-wicking echoes in her red hair and looked at him just smiling. Well, that stirred some things as well. But no, he was a man of the night's watch. He had taken a vow: I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. He had said the words before the werewood, before his father's gods. He could not unsay them. No more than he could admit the reason for his reluctance to torment Thunderfist, father to bears. Turman asks if John doesn't like y- likey and John's like, uh, I'm too young to get married. Married, dumbass. It she's not asking to get married. There's just it's just sex, bro. Wouldn't that be dishonorable to have sex outside of marriage? John asks. No. But what if they father a child? Awesome. Nice work, bro. Be nice. But if she doesn't want to be a mom, she could take some moon team. But John is still stuck on this fathering a bastard thing. I will not father a bastard. Tormund shook his shaggy head. What fools you kneelers be? Why did you steal the girl if you didn't want her? Steal? I I I never. You did, said Tormund. You slew the two she was with and carried her off. What do you call it? I I I took her prisoner. You made her yield to you, y yes. But Tormund, I swear, I've never touched her. Tormund asks John if he's sure he's not castrated, but he's dead set on not sexing Egret yet. But he sh- and if she's but if he's so dead set on not sexing Egret, he should find a she bear, or else his dick will grow small and then disappear. Really not sure of the medical science behind that, but anyways, moving on. John doesn't have an answer. To it. Anyways, he thinks about how the wildlings are quote unquote scarcely human, given all the thieving, breeding, raping, and bastards. Not a exactly charitable attitude, John. But then John thinks that he likes torment and Longspear and Egrid. but he t- but he pushes the thought of Egritte away from his mind. There were all sorts of wildlings here. Rattleshirt and the Weeper, who both suck a lot. Harmit dogs had dogs and mounts a fresh head on her banner every fortnight. Stir, Magner of Then, who was a god to his people. Verimir Sixskins, who rode a snow bear and had a tale of animals with him wherever he went. John hadn't liked the sight of him, and Ghost had liked the animal parade even less. John considers the wildling people more broadly. Frozen shore men who rode walrus bone, chariots pulled by dogs, ice river clansmen who were cannibals, hornfoot men who wore no shoes in the snow. No snarks or grumpkins yet, but who knows if they're going to show up to dinner. Most of the wildlings had probably never seen the wall and didn't speak the common tongue, but manse raiders spoke their languages and even sang in their languages. Mance had spent years assembling this vast, plodding host, talking to this clan mother and that magnar, winning one village with sweet words and another with a song, and a third with the edge of his sword, making peace with Harmadog's head and the Lord of Bones, between the Hornfoots and the Night Runners, between the walrusmen of the frozen shore and the cannibal clans of the great ice rivers, hammering a hundred different daggers into one great spear, aimed at the heart of the seven kingdoms. He had no crown, nor scepter, nor robes of silk and velvet, but it was plain to John that Mance was a king. And more than name, John had joined the wildlings due to the mission that gorn half-hand gave to him, which I will remind everyone is ride with them, eat with them, fight with them, and watch. but John hadn't fought found much, but John hadn't found much about the magic weapon the wildlings were looking for, and Mance hadn't told him anything either. John barely saw the king beyond the wall, and even and even if he knows that he has to kill him, John knows the killing would be dishonorable and would mean John would die too yet. He could not let the wildlings breach the wall to threaten Winterfell on the north, the Barrowlands, and the the Rills, White Harbor and the Stony Shore, even the Neck. For 8,000 years, the men of House Stark had lived and died to protect their people against such ravagers and reavers and bastard-born or no, the same blood ran in his veins. Bran and Rick Gunner are still at Winterfell besides Maester Loom, Sir Roderick, Old Nan, Farland the Kennelmaster, Micken and his forge engaged by his ovens, everyone I ever knew, everyone I ever loved. If John must slay a man he half admired and almost liked to save them from the mercies of Rattleshirt and Harmadog. Said dog in the earless of then, then that was what he meant to do. Not really sure about all those people who might be living at Winterfell, John, but uh, we're going to move on from that. John prays that he won't have to do this act as the Wildling party moves slowly through the wilderness. John knows that the Fist of the First Men was ahead where his brothers were. They had probably dispatched scouts forward by now and were tracking the movement of the Wildlings. He also knows that Elsie Mormont can't run or won't. He had sunk cost fallacy too much at this point. John imagines that one day he'll see the Night's Watch riding for the Wildlings. While the Wildlings had the numbers, John knows that if Mormont is able to kill Vance, it's curtains for the Free Folk. Beyond that, the Wildlings were undisciplined and vulnerable, with the best warriors at the front and back of the massive column, with more with Mance in the center. But most of these great warriors were unmounted. If Mormon attacked, Mance would have to chase, and then he might die in the battle, sparing John from committing murder and keeping the North free of Wildlings for the next hundred years. John flexes his fingers on his sword hilt when has he ever done that before, ensuring Longclaw was in close range. The snow falls heavy as John catches up with Tormund's Bam. Ghost leaves while John is in the transit, but John knows the Dire will be back. Just like Egret, who sees John and asks if he saw the giants. Ha! shut Tormund. Before John replies, "The crow's in love. He beats to bury one." A-, a a giantess. Longspear Rick laughed. No, a mammoth. Tormund bellowed. Ha ha. Egret approaches John, and John recalls that she told him that she was three years older than him, but she was much shorter than him. He also thinks about her status as a spearwife and how she reminded him of Arya. Anyways, now that Egret is here, she's got something to say—or should I say, sing. And this time it's The Last of the Giants. And I'll spare you my mellifluous tones. But the song is about how men hunt giants. And the last one sings about how everyone is dead, everything is stolen, and the men have hunted and fished their ways toward a giant genocide. Fine. Fine, fine, fine. The people have spoken. I- I'm imagining it anyways. I'll sing the last few lines. Oh, I am the last of the giants. So learn well the words of my song. For when I am gone, the singing will fade and the silence shall last long and long. There were tears on he cheeks when the song ended. Why are you weeping? John asks. It was only a song. There are hundreds of giants. I've seen them. Oh, hundreds, she said fiercely. You know nothing, John Snow. You, John! But suddenly there's a the sound of wings, and there's a flurry of blue-gray feathers all around John's face as a bird beak and towns bite and scratch into John's face. John panics and falls from his horse as eagle hangs onto John's face. The next he knew he was on his face with a taste of mud and blood in his mouth, and grit kneeling over him protectively, a bone dagger in her hand. He could still hear wings, through the, though the eagle was not in sight. Half his world was black. My eye, he said in sudden panic, raising a hand to his face. It's only blood, Jon Snow. He missed the eye, just ripped up your skin some. Jon's face throbs as Tormund bellows at the Laura Bones to leave John be. But Rattleshirt tells Tormund that he's here for Jon. Come and get him, Tormund says. He'll have to go through Torment to do that. Rattleshirt tells Tormund to stand aside as Raider wants John. So Tormund tells John that, "Yeah, bro, you should go." But Egret protests that John is bleeding. John says he'll come. Egret is also going to come too. And John makes sure that he has Longclaw in hand before he departs. They gallop two miles through swirling snows as night begins to fall. But through the snow, John sees a familiar hill ahead—the Fist of the First Men. The eagle screams overhead, and a raven looks down on the riders. Was this Mormont's work? They come up the, sl- the south slope and John sees carnage. It was there at the bottom that John saw the dead horse sprawled at the base of the hill, half buried in the snow. Entrails spilled from the belly of the animal like frozen snakes, and one of its legs was gone. Wolves, was John's first thought. But that was wrong. Wolves eat their kill. More garons were strewn across the slope, legs twisted grotesquely, blind eyes staring in death. The wildlings crawled over them like flies, stripping them of saddles, bridles, packs and armor, and hacking them apart with stone axes. Radishar tells John that Mance is at the top of the hill, so John climbs, seeing the pink snow and lots of ravens eating a dead horse. He wonders where and what Sam was now, probably taking another step and sobbing, of course. The wildlings were stripping the dead of everything valuable from the men and horses. He finds Mance at the, one of the remaining tents. Around Mance was Jarl, Harma, and Stir and Varamir. Mance asks what happened to John's face. Well, Orrell tried to take out John's eyes, according to according to Be grit. It was him. I asked.
1: Has he lost his tongue, perhaps
0: he should us further lies. Stir, the magnar drew a long knife. The boy might see more clear with one eye instead of two. Would you like to keep your eye, John?
1: Asked the king Beyond on the wall. If so, tell me how many they were. And try to speak the truth this time, bastard of Winterfell.
0: John's throat was dry. My, my, my lord,
1: what? I'm not your lord, said Mance. And the what is plain enough.
0: Your brother's died. Question is? How many? With much difficulty, John answers. 300 of us. Oh, it's us now. No, no, no. John didn't mean to say that. What he really meant to say was them. 300 of them. Mance asks Harma how many dead horses? Between 100 and 200 dead horses. You should never have lied to me, John Snow, said Mance. I, 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 I know that. What could he say? Mance asks who was in command. He doesn't think it's Riker or Smallwood or Withers. Who? John asks if they found his body. Next
1: time you answer me with a question, I will give you to my lord of bones, Mance Raider promised John. He stepped closer. Who led
0: here? One more step, thought John. Another foot. He moved his hand closer to Longclaw's hilt. If I hold my tongue... "'Reach up for that
1: bastard sword, and I'll have your bastard head off before Clays the Scabbard,' said Mance. "'I'm fast losing patience
0: with your crow.'" "'Say it,' Ygritte urged. "'He's dead, whoever he was.'" John's frown cracked the blood on his cheek. "'This is too hard,' John thought in despair. "'How do I play the turncloak without becoming one?' "'Corn had not told him that, but the second step is always easier than the first. "'The old bear,' he said." Harma disbelieves John and asks who holds Castle Black now. Bowen Marsh, John says immediately. Mance thinks that's awesome because then they're just about to win this goddamn war. John says Mormont commanded and was lying in wait for, uh. Me? finished Mance Raider. Aye, he was. Had I been fool
1: enough to storm this hill, I might have lost five men for every crow I slew and still counted myself lucky. His mouth grew hard. But when the dead walk, walls and stakes and swords mean nothing. Cannot fight the dead, John Snow. No man knows that half so well as me. He gazed up at the darkening sky and said, The clothes may have helped us more than they know. I'd wondered why we suffered no attacks. But there's still a hundred leagues to go, and the cold is rising. Vermeer, send your wolves sniffing after the white, so I won't have them taking us unawares. My lord of bones, double all the patrols. Make certain every man has torch and flint. Stir, y'all. Ja. You're right at first light.
0: Rattleshirt, though, isn't through with John. He wants to kill sad boy John Snow. But Egrit stands up for John. He was lying for his former Knight's Watch brothers. Not former sister, Curran. Oh, yeah? Then why did John spare Grit's life? And why then did he also kill half him? John's breath missed the air. If I lied to him, he'll know. John looked Mance Rayder in the eyes, opened and closed his burned hand. I wear the cloak you gave me, Your Grace. A sheep's. A sheepskin cloak, said Igrit, and there's many a night we dance beneath it too.
1: Yara laughed, and even Harmadog's head smirked. Is that the way of it, John Snow? asked Mance Rader, mildly. Her and you.
0: It was easy to lose your way beyond the wall. John did not know what he could tell. John did not know that he could tell honor from shame anymore, or right from wrong. Father, forgive me. Yes, he said. Mance says, great, awesome, John is going with Jarl and Stir tomorrow. He's not keeping two hearts that beat as one apart from each other. And, um, where are they going again? Why, they're going over the wall, dum-dum. John is going to prove his faith by actions, not words. Stir is not a fan of this idea, but Mance is unmoved. John will know the wall better than any of the wildlings. But what if he's still loyal to the Night's Watch? Then cut his fucking heart out, bro. Does Mance Raider have to think of everything in this whole goddamn wildling movement? Mance tells Rattleshirt to keep the column moving. If they make it to the wall before Mormont does, they've won. Mance, Harma, and Varamir depart, and Johnny Grit is le- are left with Jarl, Rattleshirt, and Stir. Jarl tells John to be ready to ride and to get his face fixed up. Rattleshirt tells Egrit that she better not be lying. John draws Longclaw and tells Rattleshirt to get the fuck lost. Rattleshirt says he doesn't have ghost to help him now. But then Egrit smiles and points out that you are dumb and wrong. Ghost is right over there. Atop the stones of the ring wall, ghost hunched with white fur bristling. He made no sound, but his dark red eyes spoke blood. The Lord of Bones moved his hand slowly away from his sword, backed off a step, backed off a step, and left them with a curse. Ghost moves up to John and Egret, and they ride away. It was only when they were halfway across the Milkwater that John tells Egret he never asked her to lie to him. I never did, she said. I left out part all. Y- y- You said that we fucked beneath her cloak many a night. I never said we did. I-, I never said when we started though. The smile she gave him was almost shy. Find another place for Ghost to sleep tonight, John Snow. It's like Manson said: deeds is truer than words. And that is the synopsis of A Storm of Swords, John 2. Wow, that is a long, long chapter. But you know what? It didn't feel like a long, long chapter. Didn't feel like a long, long synopsis anyways. What did you both think, gentlemen?
1: One of the major reasons I love John's chapters in Storm of Swords more than the previous books is the sense of scale. Like I said when we covered John 1 with Micah, that's just such a big chapter. And so is this one, though it works differently in terms of structure and tone. John 1 was all about building up to Mance Raider before subverting our expectations of him over and over again. John 2 is about a bunch of different things. It's about magic and mysticism, but also sex and spying. It takes us deep inside the stories and songs, while reminding us that at some level, they're all bullshit. William Friedkin, who directed The Exorcist and a ton of other great movies, once said that there are three reasons to go to the movies. To laugh, to cry, and to be scared. And I think John 2 delivers on all three. What did you think, Stefan?
2: For me, stories is the theme standing out the most. This is the first chapter in which we really get to know the free folk without the direct antagonism that colored the earlier engagements with them. Although, of course, at the end of the chapter, once again, we get this antagonism front and center. But the wealth building is concentrated on songs and stories. And I think that's a deliberate choice on Martin's part. This is an oral people without a written language. But whereas Westeros tends to assume the wildlings are lesser because of that, this chapter gives us a crucial insight in the rich intellectual uh, tradition of the free folk.
0: Yeah, that oral storytelling is so vital when you don't have a lot of people who are literate. And I think we, we see that in Westeros proper south of the Wall, but I think we also see it north of the Wall. So there's kind of that shared cultural touchstone for both people groups. And I think for this chapter, I remember reading... This chapter first time through and liking but not really loving this chapter and really the rest of John's The Storm of Swords chapters until of course he returned to Castle Black. And I think my perspective has started to change here a little bit with John 1 and now John 2. And it has a lot to do with the character development and themes. If you boil down John's free folk arc to its plot essentials, the story is mostly John trying and mostly failing to ingratiate himself with the Wildlings as a spy to learn about the Horn of Jorman, which he does, sort of, maybe, kind of, probably doesn't. And then John escapes to rejoin the Night's Watch, which is not a bad plot, it's fun for sure, but it's the character beats which make these chapters work. And I love how John has these conflicting ideas of the Wildlings as animals, something he thinks quite nobly in this chapter. But then he also admires Mance. He likes Torment and he's falling in love with the despite himself. I think trope subversion would have John find out that the Wildlings were actually good all along. Trope Interrogation, what I think George does in this chapter, has John question previously held assumptions by humanizing his now enemies and his future out al- but future allies, recognizing that the wildlings contain multitudes. And George kicks that theme off in a big, pun intended, way. Yeah, this chapter starts
1: off with one of the most fantasy things imaginable, the introduction of giants riding mammoths. What could be more metal than that? And George doesn't hold back on the otherworldly glory of this, a different species riding out of the imagination and into reality. Mammoths are real in our world, of course, but they died off so long ago that they they feel fantastical. This is a confrontation with the other. Not the White Walkers, but the conceptual Other, that which is outside your understanding of society and self. It's the kind of wonder and terror John expected to find beyond the Wall. He was disappointed in Clash of Kings to find only empty villages and then Craster's Keep. It was so mundane. It wasn't much different from life south of the Wall.
2: It's also working as an indication, much like the Valyrian armor that Euron is wearing in The Forsaken. The whole story up to this point has a strange to assume that all the stories are bullshit. Grumkins and Snarks is a proverbial phrase repeated so often that you are accustomed to just dismissing all fantastical details you hear about life in different parts of planetos. Unless, of course, you see them with your own eyes. From the prologue, we know that the others exist, for real. And since the last Danny chapter from the Game of Thrones, we also know that dragons exist. But both are clearly framed as the exceptions to the rule. Now, you suddenly see mammoths and giants riding them. Granted, they look different than in the stories, but they're there, as are barks and skin changes. Imagine my hand's Solo voice. It's true. All of it. <laughs> and so, when the mammoths show up, They do not only awe John, they awe us as readers, putting us on notice that all the stories might be more than just that. Didn't old Nan tell Bran about ice spiders climbing up the wall? Fandom has been
1: on alert for ice spiders, but uh, they are because of the memos and giants here. The unknown is exciting, but paradoxically, once you confront it, it's not unknown anymore. Stories are how we keep that feeling, the feeling of the unknown suspended, allowing us to dip back into the excitement in the context of imagination. At the same time though, stories exist to make things familiar. They take the unknown and make it something you can comprehend. Like in old Nan's stories, according to her, giants are so big you could hide in their boots. And that's not true as it turns out. John thinks "Eh, 10 to 12 feet high, 14 at most. Old Nan exaggerated their heights, but she also described them like humans, just very large humans. Turns out that's not true either. That's just a way of making giants comprehensible to her audience.
2: Which is, by the way, a common thing to do. We Mm -hmm. assume us as the standard and then extrapolate from there. You can see it in science fiction where aliens are usually very human-like, if sentient, or like bugs and mammals, if not. It's also a common mistake in our own history when we look to ancient human lifestyles, either in old civilizations or even prehistoric times. Just have a look at a Renaissance painting of Roman history. The people are looking like the contemporaries of the painter. And neither the wardrobe of Game of Thrones nor many other fantasy and medieval stories Has much to do with what people actually looked, but more with our own aesthetic sensibilities. And the same is true about behavior, etc. Stories inform our whole outlook, and John is essentially a time traveler, confronted in real time with the silliness of his assumptions.
1: As John thinks, the giants look like bears as much as humans, they're all covered in hair, and they don't wear boots at all, let alone boots big enough to hide in. Like mammoths in real life, these giants are products of evolution, not magic. They've developed feet with thick hides, they smell more than they see. And they're also part of the political context of John's chapters, in which he, as a Stark and a Night's Watchman, is trying to pass himself off as a wildling. In old Nan's stories, the giants had swords ten feet long. In reality, they used tree trunks as clubs, because as John said in Clash of Kings, wildlings did not mine or smelt, and there were few smiths and fewer forges north of the wall. But you can't include that in the stories, because then kids might start to wonder why that is. Why are there more forges south of the wall? Why are more valuable resources down here? Whose interests are served by this division, etc.? In other words, bedtime stories function as propaganda. And George is uneasy about the power of narrative, even as he wields it so effectively. John's perspective on the stories he was told is inextricable from his understanding of how power works, or how it ought to work. He sees the most impressive-looking giant and assumes, well, he must be their king, just as he assumed the wildling king would have to look impressive. John has to unlearn those instincts. As Tormund says, his kneeler's knees are just itching for someone to kneel to, because that's how he makes sense of things and of himself. He's got to serve someone, or who is he?
2: I wouldn't necessarily say he wants to serve. In this case, his knees bend to the Lord Commander and the Watch. Kneeling is at the same time more restricted and more broad than that. It's a gesture of respect, an acknowledgement of elevated status. It only comes with power through the actual feudal power relations. That however makes it even more pernicious in the eyes of the wildlings and the giants. Giving and receiving orders isn't a problem per se, they have leaders after all and even a king. What they can't abhor is the idea of their leaders being exalted. That's why they mock the notion of kneeling. That's why they almost ritually show the limits of their leaders. It's a behavior that's known from tribal societies all around Earth, and especially of the past. You ritually dethrone, mock, and demote your betters, so no lasting superiority can be achieved. The same here. Mag the Mighty commands respect, yes, but it's for his deeds, not his status, that is granted. The same is true of man's radar. Not to romanticize that too much, of course. We see the negative side effects of this with the Dothraki, for example, and the violent ripple effects that can come from it.
1: Across the cultural gap embodied and enforced by the Wall, Jon is as much a stranger to the giants as they are to him. Mag the Mighty asks Tormund if Jon is his daughter, but with those smooth pink cheeks. He's never seen a man without a beard, Tormund says. I mean, that might make sense. Up here, who would shave off your natural protection against the cold?" Gender roles work differently in this world, because gender roles are not immutable, they're performances. Then again, some things don't change. Tormund and Mag turn out to just be shit talking each other like friends do everywhere, just in a different language than John is used to. And for all that Tormund pokes fun at John for being a kneeler, I think Stefan totally has a point. Tormund also says that Mance gets pissed off when Tormund isn't in his, quote, accustomed place. So John is engaged in the same process we are as readers, measuring the gap between expectations and reality.
2: This, by the way, echoes the sentiment of his very first chapter in the Game of Thrones, where Jon remarked that as a bastard, he had to be especially astute in reading these differences, feeling them out and using them to his advantage, or at least avoid disadvantage. He's uniquely qualified for this kind of situation.
1: He has to uh, look at the image and think about what might be underneath it. So even as the giants and mammoths fulfill Jon's fantasies, they also remind him that his favorite stories were incomplete by design.
0: Yeah, and I think part of the reason why the start of this chapter is so compelling is because it works so well to undercut John's biases. It's continuing that theme from John's first chapter in The Storm of Swords, where John begins to see the Wildlings not just as the monsters from old Nan stories, but as flesh and blood human beings. The stories that John grew up with were, were little more than fairy tales or even folk tales. I mean, if you think about it, Old Nan's story of giants being large enough for a boy to live in is likely a callback to that story you probably heard from maybe your, your grandmother growing up. I don't know if, Stefan, you heard this, but The Little Woman Who Lived in a Shoe, a silly poem with potential origins to Shakespearean England about a little woman who raised a family in, in a giant shoe. Yes, this is a real, this is a real part of, of, of the Western canon here. The hearers of that poem knew that the poem was nonsense, but John bought into Old n's tale without questioning, which is just hilarious if you think about it. The giants, as John finds out, have culture, they have intelligence, they communicate, they speak, and they also laugh. They aren't legendary monsters, much as the wildlings aren't monsters either, at least as a people groups, individuals, they absolutely can be monsters. One wonders whether all of George R. R. Martin's statements about unicorns in The Winds of Winter is going to do something similar in dispelling the myths surrounding the Skagosi. As George has said, unicorns are going to be a big part in The Winds of Winter, and they're going to be much different than the unicorns that we see in regular fantasy and fiction. And I think the giants and the mammoths in Storm of Swords John 2 work as a way to undercut John's biases much as what we're going to see for the unicorns and Davos's likely chapters in the winds of winter are going to undercut the biases associated with the Skagosi as cannibals and such. But back in storm, John is confronted with the truth of the giants who ride mammoths much as he continues his confrontation with the wildlings and who they really are. And the confrontation is built in his own internal dynamics and what he is experiencing versus what he has learned from his peers and from his superiors at an earlier age to conspire, to continue dispelling John's notions about the wildlings, we open the chapter to probably, I think this is this is universally true, probably the most sympathetic wildling possible. Tormund giants, babe, or, or, Tormund, giants, Bane. One of the two. Both at the same time. Exactly. Both at the same time. I
1: love how Tormund just undercuts the epic feeling of the giants riding mammoths by asking John, eh, hey, big enough for you? Like you said, just cracking a dick joke in this awe-inspiring moment. Because undercutting epic feelings is what Tormund does. He's a character with one foot in the stories and one foot in reality. He's fully aware of that contradiction, and he delights in it. When we met him in John's first chapter in the book, he insisted on Mance listing all his titles. You might think that makes him pompous and arrogant, but the opposite is true. Tormund brings the stories down to earth, rooting the legendary and the fantastical in the ordinary functions of the body. Eating, drinking, sleeping, fucking, the things people have in common, north and south of the Wall, everywhere really.
2: Tormund also makes it very clear that he's at best to be taken half-seriously. His larger-than-life persona hides the deep seriousness underneath that will come out in A Dance with Dragons, but the tall-talking that he even includes in his list of titles as if to mock <laughs> everyone around him serves to bridge the divide between being legendary and being accessible. It allows an outsized, almost exalted position within the wildlings while giving them license to constantly mock and belittle him. It's one way to straddle that line in their society – Never would they accept a leader who truly thinks and acts like Torment the legend. But the guy with his one foot in each camp approach, they can get behind. You can always wriggle out uncomfortable conversations by saying, it's just a joke, while enjoying all the fruits of following a legendary leader. In that way, he works the same way as the old ride, which is, of course, where the comparison ends. But it's a clever <laughs> leading strategy.
1: And John starts uh, breaking down that persona. He starts with Tormund's first title, Giant's Bane. Is it true that Tormund killed one of the giants he was just so friendly with? Nope. The true story, or so Tormund says, is that he was caught in a storm, cut open a sleeping giant's belly, spent the winter in there, and then suckled at her breasts for three months when the giant woke up and thought he was her baby. This is... pretty clearly bullshit. Look, I know giants are a different species, they're a fantasy species, they can work any way George wants them to, but I feel confident in saying you can't just cut open their belly while they hibernate, get in there, and then have them wake up months later with no issues. It's a deliberately silly story. Torment earlier made fun of John and Mag the Mighty, and now he makes fun of himself. I was a boy, he says, and stupid as all boys are. His story goes even further than that, he regresses to a literal infant. But, Giant's Bane is a better nickname than Giant's Babe. And as Tormund says, that's the only honest truth. Stories are what we make of them. Tormund's tall tales work the same way as old Nan's stories. They have a kernel of truth, the bard's truth. The rest is make-believe. Stories can bridge the gaps between us. By telling this ridiculous version of the story, Tormund is demonstrating that he trusts John. I don't need to act like a badass in front of you. I'll let my guard down and be vulnerable. This makes him more likable than someone who actually killed a giant, Like Stannis' man, Godric the Giant Slayer, who hunts down a giant fleeing from the battle. So despite Tormund's story still being transparently false, it creates something real. A bond of affection. And that's how Song of Ice and Fire works too.
2: Exactly. And to drive the point home, I don't get the impression that John is the first one to hear this true version of how he got the nickname. I would wager some bronze arm rings that everyone in his band heard it three times over at least. But once again, it serves to allow him and, crucially, also his band to brandish a title like Giant Spain and strike fear into the hearts of rival uh, rival raider groups. Rival raider groups, uh, that's one. Um, and whenever someone calls them out, they can laugh and refer to the origin sto- story. Stupid you, falling for a joke. Same with Jon here. Either the Night's Watch fused the giant's bane, or they're so stupid that they even get, don't get a basic joke. Win-win for the Raiders.
0: Yeah, and just to emphasize something you were saying earlier, I think the larger thematic note about Tormund's ridiculous story is how it shows him as a pretty good guy, all things considered. By and large, the villains of the Song of Ice and Fire hate laughter, and they despise being the butt of jokes. Tywin Lannister, Theon Greyjoy, and A Clash of Kings. The more noble characters tend towards not taking themselves as seriously and allowing themselves a laugh at their expense. Tormund is there to not take himself seriously to demonstrate the jolly nature of being silly, which is great. At the same time, this works well with John's story from A Game of Thrones and how John initially being hated being called Lord Snow by Alistair Thorne. Back then, Tyrion counseled John to make the name part of his armor to wear the mocking name that Alistair bestowed on him proudly and join in on the joke. That caused Jon to recruit friends with his Night's Watch recruits where he was earlier isolated and alone. Now, there's a possibility that maybe Tormund in his younger days went through a similar character evolution where he was called Giant's Bane by his fellow wildlings as a mocking epithet. But he took on the name and made it part of his identity, making it part of a larger-than-life persona. Now, interestingly, Tormund himself could be inspired by stories in real life, namely by Norse Norse myths. Norse myths, that's the word I'm looking for. Norse myths. The, those stories that were told by, by Scandinavians back in the day. Because there was a character who had a similar name as Tormund Giantsbane. Thor Thunderfist. You might have seen him in some of the Marvel movies. In Norse legends, Thor came upon the giant Scribor while traveling the forest. In a wild series of events, Thor is wakened by a sleeping giant snoring, fights the giant for snoring, who laughs at him three times over, realizes that it's Loki in disguise, which enrages Thor, who tries to murder Loki as the giant before as the giant... Uh, and who tries to murder Loki as a giant before the giant and the castle the giant is staying at disappear. Again, I know there are probably some Norse mythology people who listen to this podcast who are just shrieking in horror at my summation of the story because it's very dense and I don't understand it really all that much. But at the same time, I think George is borrowing some inspiration from Norse mythology from real life stories in crafting this ridiculous story about torment Giants bait based on an even more ridiculous Norse myth.
1: Stories like that can also, however, reinforce the gaps between us, as well as closing them up. There's that propaganda effect I mentioned earlier, and stories can also be weaponized in a military context. John asks about Tormund's other titles, trying to complete the mission that brought him here, find out what power the Wildlings have awoken. If Tormund is the Hornblower, maybe he's going to blow the Horn of Winter. Maybe he already has, and that's where the title comes from, and that's where the Giants came from. But John is clever enough not to ask about that title specifically, because that would give him away. He's learning how to be a spy. Like Sansa learning to flatter Joffrey, John uses flattery to keep Tormund talking. And I love that Tormund is smart enough to be suspicious. Like he asks John, are all crows so curious? But he still can't resist launching into another story. And that's his character in a nutshell. Despite his comment in John's last chapter that Mance has more cunning than he does, Tormund is still a very crafty guy. Despite his goofy, rambly persona, nothing escapes Torman's notice. He didn't just happen to pick Husband to Bears as the next title to explain through story. He picks it because he wants to talk to John about sex.
2: That's also Torman in a nutshell. He uses Mm -hmm. all his political craftsmanship to inquire about John's sex life, gaining an almost pubescent joy from making him squirm. You have to love a character like that.
1: Absolutely. Torman has this kind of intimacy- with squeamish things that other John's other father figures don't have. He's kind of <laughs> unique in putting John in this position. So like Tormund's previous story, this story, the husband-to-bear story, is set in the middle of a fierce snowstorm. And you get the sense that, you know, most wildling stories are set in the middle of a fierce snowstorm. In the same way that in Dorne, they probably tell a lot of stories about survival in the desert. And in the Iron Islands, they probably tell a lot of stories about survival at sea. Everywhere you go, what makes stories dramatic is the threat specific to your environment that your local audience will know and understand. And if you are telling your story, you want to present yourself as someone who has mastered their environment. As with his giant tauntaun mommy, though, Tormund's story doesn't quite work that way. It's about abduction, what the wildlings call stealing a woman, but the specifics deliberately deflate any sense of tension. Tormund was just sitting around getting drunk and horny, and he doesn't pretend it was anything other than that. He braved the potentially lethal snowstorm for nothing more than that, because that's his highest cause. The details of what followed, viewed objectively, are a horror story, (laughs) rape followed by castration. But in Tormund's hands, it becomes a comedy. Part of that is, as with the giantess, the bullshit at the heart of it. Possessing animals with psychic powers is one thing, we've already seen that in this universe, but what Tormund says happened, the woman physically transforming from human to animal overnight, that does not seem to be part of this universe, not to mention bearing live young as the other species. So this is a fable, a purposefully unreal story that exists to illustrate a point. The point for Tormund, buried beneath the brag about how big his dick will forever remain no matter how much <laughs> gets cut off, is that this is the story of John and Egret. John stole Egret, according to the wildlings, and I think they've got a point. Like from their perspective, John held a knife to her throat, forced her to submit, made her his prisoner, and then spared her life. As far as Tormund is concerned, that's true love.
0: That's an excellent point. Tormund uses his own story to both interrogate John and also learn Sad Boy something about Wildling culture. The interrogation aspect of Tormund telling the story is kind of similar to what Mansraider did back in back to John in A Storm of Swords, John one. Torment is testing John's reaction, in my opinion, seeing how John would react to the idea of stealing grit. If he reacts negatively, then he looks kind of like a fake turncloak, doesn't he? But if he reacts positively, I think he looks even more like a fake turncloak. What John does is react with surprise because he's a neophyte to Wildling Culture and doesn't fully understand what was happening when he quote unquote stole Egrit. And that was a genuine reaction by John, which allows Tormin to educate John about Wildling Culture. Part of the complexity of the espionage story is that for John is that in that he has to play the part of someone who has just come over who isn't all that familiar with wildling culture. And John plays that part really well, mostly because he has no real knowledge of wildling culture beyond old Nan's stories, his interactions with Craster, and of course his brief conversation with Egret from A Clash of Kings, John six. And John may protest this wasn't his intention, stealing Egret
1: away, but he spared her life specifically because she was female and reminded him of his own family. So while John wasn't raised among free folk and doesn't think about sex or romance that way, he kind of did engage in a courtship ritual without realizing it. And then there's the exquisite irony of John's own origins. Robert says that Rhaegar raped Lyanna. No one else puts it that way. What really happened is murky, but there are also chivalric overtones to it. So it's abduction or romance, depending on who you talk to. And the same applies here.
2: That's the Thor lines through the whole story. The lines are blurred, especially in the songs. Is it love? Is it rape? Is it something in between? These people have other concepts, and while Ygritte bought the whole thing, hook, line, and sinker, she's also suffering from survivors' bias. She's very strong and protected by friends and had good luck in the warbands she was riding. Not all wildling women will be so lucky. And in fact, we see the much less romantic side of this in the abductions by proxy that Vermeer used to perform uh, perform in a prologue of A Dance with Dragons. It's a reality neither of the wildlings likes to own up much to, uh, much like the consequences of their ratings. They prefer their songs like the knights uh, uh, prefer theirs. We have yet to meet a wilding version of Sandaklegain to turn it all down, but I think at this point in the story, Martin is a confident enough writer to trust the audience in his skills, and rightly so.
1: Totally agreed. We shouldn't look for one-to-one moral instruction from fiction, after all, any more than John should take Torment stories literally. I think it's more rewarding to treat stories as an opportunity to examine our own perspective. Why am I like this? Why do I think and react the way that I do? Tormund uses his story about the she bear to interrogate John. They must have already castrated you at the wall, otherwise, you'd be off with your she bear egret. From one perspective, the vows of the Night's Watch and the King's Guard and the Maesters, etc., demonstrate strength. They don't cut your dick off because that would rob you of the choice to make a self-sacrifice. We see that in Brienne's chapters in Feast when uh, Podrick and Septon Maribald are talking. And Podrick says, The silent sisters never speak. I heard they don't have any tongues. And Meribold responds, Mothers have been cowing their daughters with that tail since I was your age. There was no truth to it then, and there is none now. A vow of silence is an act of contrition, a sacrifice by which we prove our devotion to the seven above. For a mute to take a vow of silence would be akin to a legless man giving up the dance. But from another perspective, these vows are a cruel farce. We see that with a, when Krasniz Monaklos is talking about those institutions a little later in Storm, and he says, Poor things. Men were not made to live thus. Their days are a torment of temptation, any fool must see. And no doubt, most succumb to their baser selves. Now that's a slaver saying that, of course. Yet, as with Jorah Mormont talking about how the small folk are never left alone in the Game of Thrones, there is a kernel of truth to that despite the hypocrisy of the man saying it. Maybe it's pointless to deprive yourself of simple pleasures, especially when gross inequalities persist regardless. Jamie has also been challenging the validity of those vows, saying that the white cloak soiled him, not the other way around. Maybe the same thing applies to the black cloak of the Night's Watch. If the rule you followed brought you to this, of what use was the rule? Torment, like Mance, is at war with more than the institution of the Night's Watch. He is at war with an ideology, what he sees as absurd limits on freedom
2: it's a good question to interrogate. However, in some of these cases, we know the pragmatic reasons perfectly well. Kingsguard and Night's Watch alike are a guarantee that their members are removed from the feudal system. Where the Kingsguard is meant to serve the royal person alone without being bound to old allegiances, then the Watch is supposed to be concentrated on their task alone and not to tinker with the Game of Thrones. However, this presents three major problems. One, it doesn't work. Preventing legal offspring is nice and good where it comes to inheritance, but this could be achieved simply by forbidding marriage. So all children are abas- uh, all children, childrens, uh, all children are bastards. And shows how badly the primogeniture system functions anyway. This will become relevant for John when he gets tempted with Winterfell, and then later when Danny swings around. Two. This only applies to the nobility. Why does a sad sack like Chad has to stay chaste? It's not like any children he fathers would endanger succession lines. That leaves us with three. These vows also serve as identity politics. You are chaste because you aspire to a higher ideal. You want to be more than, or have to be, rather. It's the part of the vows, me thinks, that this is the most troubling aspect and the one Torment and many other wildlings zero in instantly. It's at odds with uh, with Torment's whole MO. How can you consciously try to model yourself as someone better than everyone else? And then, you don't even get anything from it. Torment does not only hate the idea behind these vows, he's flabbergasted why anyone would take them since they are not only destroying the proper way social relations ought to work, but you don't even benefit. To him, that's just rank madness. Of course, the people who actually take these vows seriously, like Jon, like Arthur Dayne, like even Aerys Okard and yes, Jamie Lannister ones, they present dilemmas, but also guiding stars. I guess I just spend many words saying it's complicated.
1: <laughs> it sure is. And yeah, I think I think part of what Jamie's trying to get at and other characters who talk like that and they don't oh, you know, obviously no one gets at anything they're trying to say perfectly. But it's it's like the the way Westeros works is just there's no institution worthy of your vows. Like even if the vows themselves sound good in the abstract, just applying them in practice to how any institution of in Westeros works is, is gonna come out with a with a scenario where you get people who are unhappy, people who break their vows, who, who do it on the side, and there there are very few actual paragons, actual uh actual guiding stars. And I think so often in life, like, you know, you're your priors, your, the things you believe in, more than anything else, those always get complicated and challenged by by romance and by by individual relationships that don't fit the way you thought the world was going to work. In this case, we have John and Egret. Egret is clearly into John, as he thinks she has not been subtle about it. She followed him from Rattleshirt's band to Tormund's, emphasizing that this is how the free folk work: they go where they want with whoever they want. Every night when they make camp, Egret sleeps next to him. And once she nestled up close against him in the night. As John thinks, he slept that close with Corrin and the boys up in the Frost Fangs, but this is different. One kind of intimacy replacing another. He can't have both. John always has to choose. Who is my pack? John is still learning how to be a wildling, or to act like one, which amounts to the same thing, at least to a certain extent. John longs to bathe in hot water, like the kind that pumped like blood through the walls of Winterfell. But the cold water isn't so bad, Egret says, long as you have someone to warm you up afterward. The river is only part ice, like John himself. Ice and fire, detachment and passion, preservation and consumption. Those opposites brought together. John has to unlearn his old way of thinking. And so this is where Egret first says, you know nothing. The mantra of their relationship. (laughs) It's an insult, but in a tough love kind of way, forcing John to learn. After all, the first step toward wisdom is admitting how little you know.
2: You know nothing, Jon Snow, isn't only a very quotable line and one that you print on t-shirts, though. It stays with Jon for a long time after Ygritte's death. Mm-hmm. The Greek philosopher Plato coined the phrase, I know that I know nothing. And this is essentially the lesson Jon learns here. Of course, he isn't much of a philosopher, so it's the pragmatic core of it that he inhales. There are so many things I don't know. What I don't know threatens me. Therefore, I have to learn. Donald Rumsfeld would approve.
1: (laughs) 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 I can can imagine him now with that that lizardy smile on his face. John already had to acknowledge that he knew nothing when he left Winterfell for the watch and he had to get that dressing down from Donald Noy. The same thing applies to leaving the Night's Watch for the Wildlings. He tells himself that Egret uh, wouldn't be seen as a great beauty down south in the courts of Westeros. She'd be seen as a common peasant with crooked teeth and eyes that are too far apart. It's clear that John is taking refuge in this kind of gendered class snobbery because he's unsettled by how little any of these cultural norms actually matter once you're outside the context in which they're regularly enforced. John can't deny his physical attraction to Egret, which is exactly Torman's point. The watch might have told you not to use your dick, but you still have it, and it's responding. It's responding to her smile, her singing voice, her sleeping arms around him. And it just doesn't care that she would be thought of as ugly back home.
2: Like with Bryin, this is something I feel gets lost in a lot of pictures and, of course, the Game of Thrones series. Amok's original picture of Ygritte captured a lot of her homeliness, but the usual trope of our heroes being beautiful people is too strong to resist for many. It's only logical that John loses that train of thought once he gives in to temptation, and so we as readers also forget about Igret's features. It's her character that stays with us, the person John fell in love with, not an ideal of aesthetics.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's so good, an ideal of aesthetics. That is exactly what John's comparing it to, right? He remembers that in the stories, in the songs, a faithful knight and his chaste lady love would keep a sword between them for honor's sake. It's a perfect encapsulation of how chivalric values are backed up by physical force, or rather by the threat of force, a shadow on a wall that requires you to believe in it. What if John doesn't believe in it anymore? He uses Ghost instead of a sword to keep them apart. Ghost, the emblem of his Stark self, the direwolf on the banners. But he's just so far from home now.
0: You know what's kind of interesting is that Ghost didn't prevent Ygritte from sleeping next to John with her arms draped over his chest at any point in time. Like he seems to think (laughs) in his mind that Ghost is this kind of like thing that's going to prevent them from having sex. But Ghost doesn't seem to mind what Ygritte is doing. (laughs) If Ghost is somewhat the embodiment of John's wolfish desires, we're seeing that Ghost probably doesn't disapprove of John coupling with Ygritte. And John makes the point that the wildlings mate with whoever they wish, thinking that it's all part of them being just more animal and beast than man. But the idea that wildling mating patterns is animalism, so to speak, is a holdover from the way John was brought up in Westerosi sexuality, specifically Westerosi sexuality in a noble context. Sex outside of marriage, the fathering of bastards, the taking of multiple partners, is seen as sinful by most Westerosi, really outside of Dorm. But in a pack, it's different, and for a lot of human history, it's different too. John himself descends from the Targaryens, famously polygamous in the case of Aegon the Conqueror, or amorous in the case of Aegon Fourth. Beyond that, there's the theory that Rhaegar himself was polygamous or polyamorous, having married Elia of Dorne, and possibly having married Lyanna as well. Now, the show's version would have had the marriage between Rhaegar and Elia and Noll for it's worth, but I do think there is still the possibility that in the book's Rhaegar remained married to Elia while also marrying Lyanna as well. So John pulls away from the wildling custom, even as his near and far ancestor participated in a somewhat similar practice. Anyways,
1: I think you're right to put John's instincts into that larger context because the personal is always political. John's potential sexual relationship with Egret is all caught up in his mission as a spy for the Night's Watch. Resisting her looks suspicious, like he's sticking to the vows he repudiated. As with Mance in the tent, he has to come up with a lie that Tormund will believe. And as when Jon told Mance that he resented being treated poorly as a bastard in Winterfell, there is truth to Jon's performance here. First, he falls back on the abstractions of honor, like the sword between the knight and the maiden, but Tormund pokes holes in Jon's fictions as easily as he does his own. Jon says they aren't married. Tormund points out that they don't wed everyone they bed in the south. Isn't Jon proof of that? If this sounds familiar, it's because Rob was struggling with the exact same dilemma in Catelyn 2 last week. As with Tyrion and Jaime in Storm of Swords, the Stark boys are facing similar dilemmas in their own ways. While Rob married Jane Westerling to avoid putting his child in Jon's place as a bastard, Jon just doesn't sleep with Ygritte at all for the same reason. There's an element of self-loathing in the subtext here, which is heartbreaking if you think about it. John doesn't want a child to be like him. He thinks of himself as just the wrong way to be. Tormund is offering him a way out of that self-loathing. You're bastard-born, and there's nothing wrong with it. Your child will be strong and beautiful. And anyway, if Egret doesn't want the kid, she'll just drink moon tea. What are you worrying about? It's the temptation of liberation from routines, worldviews, institutions that tell you who you are in favor of individualism for both John and Egret.
2: Of course, neither Torment nor anyone else in the chapter, or indeed in the saga, so far goes much into it. But as with all things wildling ideology, there's a darker undercurrent to this. Sure, the wildlings don't shun bastard born children as much as the South does, but still, families matter. Supporting figures matter. Igrit is a spearwife, changing warbands as she likes. She doesn't strike me as someone who has a large net of relatives to fall on, so if Jon would get her pregnant, she's basically a single mum in a war zone. Torment's just go for it, lad, is the expression of male privilege in some way, and goes to show that even beyond the wall, patriarchy has its roots.
1: Agreed. I don't think John, of the many mentors and influences John gets, none of them are perfect. All of them have blind spots, and all of them are cautionary tales to a certain extent. That's what makes it so difficult, is that John's psychology is just becoming this ever more elaborate Venn diagram of all these ways of being overlapping each other, and he's trying to find a spot where he can fulfill all of them. When John gets some time to himself to think, we see how conflicted he is. His expectations about the Wildlings have been both challenged and confirmed. Accordingly, he feels like both a friend and a stranger. He likes Torment, because how can you not? He likes Egret as well, as much as he tries to deny it to himself. As Corin Halfhand said, it was, it was only fools like Thorn Smallwood who hate the Wildlings. The rest of us understand—they're just people. So it's difficult for John to conceive of them as his enemy, the people he was sworn to fight. And maybe they aren't the ones he swore to fight. Elsie Mormont, right before he gets killed, finally sees the light. The wall was made to guard the realms of men. And not against other men, which is all the wildlings are when you come right down to it. Too many years, too many hundreds and thousands of years, we lost sight of the true enemy.
2: And this is why I propose to come back for this chapter specifically. <laughs> the last time you had me on, we talked about the Faustian situation that Egret's capture and subsequent offer set up. To recap, if there are laws to the wildlings, then you can treat with them, even make binding contracts. And back in The Clash of Kings, this was pure theory, based on a single encounter... One chapter later, the half-hand confirmed it was true. But getting told something, even from sources differing as wildly as Egrid and Corin, is one thing. Seeing and experiencing it, that's quite something else. And so, aside from all the stories we get, this chapter is the fulcrum in Sean's character arc, because it's here he gets to know the wildlings as a people, here where he realizes they are people, and we as readers do too. Without this realization, you cannot have John's plot in A Dance with Dragons. This is where the seeds ripen that were planted in Tron 7 of A Clash of Kings, and they will be harvested in John 11 in A Dance with Dragons. I really had to search for a long time because I thought it was much earlier in the book. And <laughs> it was only his 11th chapter that he meets Torment again. Wow. Uh, and then finally uh, can reap what he sowed.
1: That's, of course, after Torment has already suffered some attacks at the hands of the White Walkers north of the Wall, and we're going to be reminded about that true enemy later in this chapter as well. And then there's Mance Raider, the king keeping it all together. We learn more about his legend here. Mance went personally, it seems, to all of the many groups that make up the wildling host, winning some with his sword and some with his songs, speaking the old tongue that the giants were speaking as well as the common, making peace between enemy clans, making his people one. And I would argue this is the single most impressive political accomplishment in the series. Now, sure, the return of the White Walkers already had the Wildlings ready to run. They were primed for a new King Beyond the Wall. But as Mance tells Jon later in the book, five other guys were competing for the title of King Beyond the Wall, and none of them had the disadvantage of having served in the Night's Watch like Mance did. Mance bested them all, and he did it without dragons or shadowbinders, without crowns and scepters, without relying on a famous last name. None of the signifiers of power that apply in the world John came from. Now he realizes there is more to leadership than that. As he thinks, Mance is a king in more than name. There's an authentic substance to him that he found lacking elsewhere.
2: I'd absolutely agree that this is the greatest accomplishment of this series, but it's left so much in the dark that it's hard to assess it. Hmm. I find that a bit frustrating, to be honest, <laughs> since the moment itself is presented as straight-up fact, stripped of all the vestiges of story that permeated so much through the chapter before. However, in its wakeness, the titanic feat somehow is more shrouded in mystery and legend than the story of Torment's member. How did Men's actually do it? How much time did it take? Given the scattered nature of the wildlings, he simply can't have bested everyone. Just think of Varamir, he terrorized a single small village. He was bested by Menz, although it is unclear how exactly. How many of these small tyrants must there have been? At some point, Menz must have relied on proxies. And we even know he did so. Cresta tells us that the rider came to him whose tongue he hmm. nailed to the wall. At least he claims that. Hmm. But how did everything else work? The Doyleist interpretation is that Martin doesn't write the story for structural reasons and simply hand waves it, and that's fair enough. Time and distance have never been strong concerns of his anyway, and we know he can thump the scales pretty hard if he wants a certain outcome. The Watsonian interpretation is that Wildlings, for reason of reputation, do not want to divulge too much into how they got bested by mans. They're perfectly happy to foster their own legends, like Torment, and present their following man's as their own decision, revocable at any time. Which in fact it is. Again, in so many words, it's complicated.
0: <laughs> it is kind of complicated. And I do agree that there is a kind of hand wavy aspect with Mance Raider winning all of the Wildlings over, besides those few holdouts like Craster. But I think it works well in the narrative to keep how Mance Raider formed the Wildlings together as one group and one people ambiguous. We will. When it comes to like gaps of, of of information, we tend to fill those gaps of what Manserider did to win, to bring everyone together, and how he hammered all these disparate people, disparate peoples, together into one community. Now, in John one, I talked a lot about how the wildlings resemble something like the Gothic migrations to the Roman Empire in the fourth and fifth century C.E. And you know, the thing interesting thing about those migrations is that the leadership of most of those peoples were Really, we don't really know much about how they were really formed and how they became leaders of those bands. Alaric I, the character I mentioned back in John 1, appeared as a warband leader of the Goths and Gothic allies who invaded Thrace after as a Roman soldier or a Roman auxiliary. As a Roman foederati or an allied soldier, Alaric mutinied after being one of the few Gothic foederati to survive the Battle of the Frigidus. Thereafter, he developed a reputation as a fearsome warrior and leader among the Goths in the Balkans and Greece and developed a large following, but our historical sources don't really go into details on how Alar grew to such a stature, And just like just like Mance did. That parallels Mance's rise as a knight's watchman first, the best of them, prior to becoming the king beyond the wall. Though we don't know the details of how Mance really drove everyone together, in my opinion, we don't have to it makes more sense if the construction of a unified wildling people is shrouded in ambiguity and legend especially since few of the wildlings are littered and most of the stories that were told are embellished funny like torment stories and also told in song which also incurs a fair amount of ambiguity and embellishment too
1: you make great points. I'd forgotten that Stefan said that, yeah, Mance does use that proxy with Craster. I'm betting it worked similar to Barrick in terms of uh, momentum, in terms of getting a ball rolling, and then it starts mm. to roll on its own. Where, what does Harwin say to Arya? You know, for every one of our men that fell, two more showed up to take their place. Some of them, I'm sure they were directly recruiting, but other times it's just like, you start your band off, people hear about you, they have their interests, and they come to you. And, and, and this, you know, in, in Barrick's case, there was the ever-present threat of the armies fighting over the Riverlands, driving people to his into his arms, and with Mance, of course, it, it's the rise of the White Walkers. John wears that sheepskin cloak that Mance gave him, but he keeps the black cloak of the Night's Watch folded up beneath his saddle, as if a reminder where his loyalty really lies. Although it's it's not really his loyalty to the Watch that's eating away at John inside. It's his loyalty to Winterfell, the home and family he left behind when he went to Castle Black, even before he came to the Wildlings. The existence of an apocalyptic threat doesn't just erase human conflicts, and Mance's impressive leadership eh, makes him a threat in those conflicts. As John thinks, Mance has hammered together a hundred daggers into a spear, aimed at the heart of the Seven Kingdoms. As Jeff was saying, George wisely avoids framing every wildling as a misunderstood hero. The point, as Corrin said, is that they're people, like other people. With heroes, with villains, and those in between, just like those south of the wall. On one hand, that's what makes the divisions between everyone absurd, because there's nothing categorically different about all of you, you're just people. On the other hand, that means there are members of Mance's coalition that pose danger to the people John grew up with. Harma, Varamir, the Weeper. If the wildlings were all like that, as John had been led to believe, it would make his task easier. Just kill those guys. But killing an obvious supervillain like Varamyr Sixskins wouldn't actually remove the danger, because what, he, because what keeps the host together is Mance. For all the work he's done uniting his people, they are still a hundred camps more than one, as Jon thinks, and most of them are non-combatants. Mance is all they have in common. If he died, it would all come apart, as when Renly died in Book 2, and when Caldrogo fell off his horse in Book 1.
2: Which is, by the way, a common trope. Chop off the head of the snake, and the rest will fall. Literally so, oftentimes, as in Avengers or Lord of the Rings. In this case, it happens to be true, but oftentimes, it's not. The tired trope of, they're going to assassinate the president, is one iteration of that. Luckily, Martin also shows us scenarios in which killing the head of the snake doesn't do anything. The king's mood is one, Stannis' leeches is another.
1: So, John feels obligated to take down Mance because that would get rid of the wildling host. He feels obligated to kill a man that he, quote, half admired and almost liked. A great turn of phrase that captures John's mindset right now. As with Egret, John is unwilling to admit, even to himself, how much he respects Mance Raider. For the same reason, Jamie doesn't name his horses anymore. It makes it harder when they die. Dehumanization is a product of individual assholes like Thor and Smallwood, but it's also <laughs> part of insidious systemic programming, as, as Mance encountered when he came back to the watch, when he came back to the wall with his red cloak and they wanted to burn it. The watchmen are discouraged from seeing the wildlings as their fellow man, because that would make it harder to hunt and kill them.
2: Of course, that runs both ways. Most wildlings dehumanize the watch just as much, even Egrid.
1: Oh, sure. The wall is, you know, a physical barrier, but also stands in for mental barriers. It's the kind of, it's the filter that has to slam down over your eyes so you can look at another human being and see them as another, and see them as something else. But just as John felt angry and ashamed about leaving Gilly behind at Craster's Keep, he is heartsick at the prospect of killing Mance because he admires him. And that might be an early clue of how he's gonna feel about Danny. It's the human heart in conflict with itself. So John hopes that the Night's Watch will spare him that painful choice by attacking, killing Mance, breaking the host. Do it for me, please, so I don't have to do it.
2: This, funny enough, mirrors Jamie Lannister's approach in A Storm of Swords and A Feast for Crows. Please, let someone else do the bad deed, so I'll be spared. Unfortunately, while it makes it a bit easier for sure, it does not actually absolve you from the responsibility. Jon is a spy in the wildling camp, and he will betray their trust, whether he actually kills Mans or no.
1: That's the thing with those vows and loyalties, there's no clean way out. Absolutely. Even, even if it all worked out for Jon in terms of his individual actions, even if the Night's Watch really did show up to kill Mance, well, what would happen next? What would be the status quo they would all return to? Just as Tormund used a parable to explain how he sees John and Egret's relationship, Egret uses a song to express her feelings about the war that her people have lost over and over again. That song is Last of the Giants, and I think it expresses George's feelings as well. It's a melancholy story of loss and grief, which is basically George's favorite thing. He literally named a book Dying of the Light. He got that phrase, of course, from Dylan Thomas and his novel Fever Dream, which we're covering over at patreon.com slash (laughs) notacastASOIAF for all our $5 and above patrons. That novel draws very heavily from Byron's poems. George loves these romantic poems for their expression of how hopeless the world can seem, how alone we all are in our struggle to find meaning. Last of the Giants is his contribution to those poems, smuggled into a folkloric song. It's one of the most Tolkien-esque moments in A Song of Ice and Fire, not only because Tolkien included a ton of songs in Lord of the Rings, but because Last of the Giants is about the sorrow of dwindling into obsolescence and then extinction, which is also what so much of Lord of the Rings is about. You can easily imagine the elves of Rivendell or Lothlorien singing certain parts of this song, about how they used to be many, but now they are few, and how the singing will fade into silence once they're gone. But while the emotions are similar, the social context behind the song is different. The elves weren't directly threatened by humans, so much as increasingly outnumbered by them, especially as they began departing Middle-earth for the West in greater and greater numbers. The giants have been penned up behind the wall and actively hunted they have no convenient utopia over the waves to escape to. So while Tolkien's elves in part embody a classical heritage, being replaced by the industrial forces of modernity with Sauron and Saruman and the Scouring of the Shire, the giants represent the state of nature that the wildlings believe has been perverted by power. But the giants in this song also stand in for the wildlings themselves, how they see themselves, how they see themselves as left behind by how Westeros has changed around them. That's something Egret says in Storm that, you know, we were doing just fine and then the kings came along with their steel, their swords and castles dividing up the world. Whether or not that's like a literal historical truth of what happened in Westeros, it's a very real emotional part of wildling culture and ideology. And you can see how those words from Egrid are echoed in the song, in which the giants grieve for the valleys cut in two by the wall, the fish who were overfished into extinction. So this song is also about indigenous people facing destruction. Last of the giants could be George's last of the Mohicans, the final glimpse of a dying world being crushed into oblivion. John doesn't get the metaphor because he doesn't understand the context. He comes from the stone halls in the song, So why are you crying, he asks Egret. It's only a song. There are still hundreds of giants. I just saw them. He's taking the song too literally, failing to reach for the emotion behind the words, the same mistake that some readers make. What John doesn't get is that there used to be way more than hundreds of giants. There used to be thousands, maybe even millions. At the beginning of the chapter, the giants seemed like an awe-inspiring spectacle, proof of the strength of the old world. That's John's perspective. From the perspective of the wildlings, and I think probably the giants themselves, the present is only a sad, bitter fragment of the past. Westeros was their home. Now it isn't. The survivors mourn not only the dead, but a world that had a place for them, remembered now only in song. I recently read Jesmyn Ward's Men We Reaped, and she writes, We tried to outpace the thing that chased us, that said you are nothing. We tried to ignore it. But sometimes we caught ourselves repeating what history said, mumbling along, brainwashed, I am nothing. There is a great darkness bearing down on our lives, and no one acknowledges it. Later in the book, she writes We honor anniversaries of deaths by cleaning graves and sitting next to them before fires, sharing food with those who will not eat again. We raise children and tell them other things about who they can be and what they are worth. To us, everything. We love each other fiercely while we live and after we die. And finally, she writes, grief doesn't fade. Grief scabs over like scars and pulls into new painful configurations as it knits. It hurts in new ways. We're never free from grief. We're never free from the feeling that we have failed. We're never free from self-loathing. We are never free from the feeling that something is wrong with us, not with the world that made this mess. And that's why Egret is crying. The sense that the end is coming no matter what they do, no matter how much they love the living and honor the dead. The dead march behind them now, and as Mance says, there's nothing you can do against the dead. It's their loved ones transformed into enemies, ready to pin them against the wall and silence all the songs.
0: Yeah, that's really well said. I mean... It's hard to follow up on that. But for most of my adult life, I've been fascinated by the recent extinction or near extinction of megafauna. I know it's, it's weird. probably doesn't seem like something I would be into, but it's something I'm really into. One near extinction event was the bison population in North America and how it was nearly hunted to extinction. In times past, at the start of the 19th century, the bison population was estimated to be around 30 to 40 million strong prior to the mass hunting of the 19th century and the onset of bison-specific diseases. By the early 1880s, the bison population was under 500 in North America, again, going down from 30 to 40 million as a population. Thanks to conservation efforts, the bison population surged and is currently living in some ways. Uh, Currently living, I believe it's in a a near near threatened uh, status right now. But the song, The Last of the Giants, reminds me of one of my favorite pieces of American art, The Last of the Buffalo by Albert Bierstadt, which our patrons can see in our show notes if you are one of our patrons at any level. It's a sad painting of the last buffalo being hunted in the American West on the High Plain. It's really something to view. Of course, the last of the buffalo wasn't telling the full story, as again, the bison population almost miraculously survived and still lives again in a near-threatened conservation status. The last of the giants reminds us of the sad, melancholic state of being hunted to extinction, of losing land and sustenance. What I think is interesting in Ygritte's angry at John is that this was not merely the fault of those Southerners who actually hunted the Giants to extinction. People who lived south of the Wall really didn't have much to do with it. Recall that old Nan's stories had John believing that the Giants were enormous men, and John didn't hear otherwise growing up in Winterfell. Bran told Osha that Maester Lewin told him that the Giants were all dead, and you have to assume that Maester Lewin told John the same thing. Of course, there is mention of Night's Watch rangers fighting wildlings and giants and terrible snow bears in a Game of Thrones John 5, which reads as some of the heroic mythos the Night's Watch rangers, or ranger recruits rather, believe about themselves rather than straight up, yep, giants slaying, just another day on the job type of statement. So my read is that the atrocities and the near extinction of the giants in the past thousands of years came primarily through those people who were north of the wall, primarily through the wildlings. Egrit and the wildlings might be the underdogs and outcasts on the Westerosi continent, but that status doesn't prevent the wildling humans from hunting the giants down and taking their stuff. What I wonder whether Egrit's tears are ones of self-reflection, guilt, and shame over what the wildlings have done to the giants. And now the giants are coming with their former enemies, driven together by a far worse enemy than each other. They've become allies. There's a case we made for this to be the example. Former enemies coming together over a common foe. In fact, I would argue that the Wildling Giant Alliance works as for shouting for the alliance between the Northmen and the Wildlings when the wall comes down in the winds of winter. But at the same time, there is still that sense of emotion and sadness here. George is not simply doing foreshadowing and groundwork for future events. He wants to communicate the emotion conveyed by an entire population starting to vanish and going from millions, potentially 30 to 40 million, as you were saying, or as the bison population was saying, you were saying millions of giants, to now just a few hundred left. It's kind of a sad statement and it kind of like really works on your emotions and you really feel the way the grit feels at the end, at, towards the middle part of this chapter.
1: I think you're you're probably right about where the the ultimate source of the near extinction of the giants. And I think I think you definitely hit on something that Egret feels both anger and guilt. I think you can see that once they get atop the wall in a later John chapter in Storm, and she says how upset she is that they never found the Horn of Winter, and she she feels like not just like bad about that, like oh we could have won the war, but like we we failed at some level. And I think you can definitely see that kind of sadness uh, with Egret, and kind of the relationship with John brings that out of her. So this chapter so far has been about John's assimilation into a new world, but it builds to a confrontation between that world and his old one. And the timing is perfect. Right after John reveals his ignorance of life on this side of the wall by saying, "Oh, what, there are hundreds of giants!" Right then, that life literally attacks him in the form of Orel's eagle. The dwindling of the giants is invisible to John because he wasn't around for the glory days. Here is the violence between worlds made tangible. A scar that will mark Jon with these experiences even after he returns to the Night's Watch. He's a new person, with a new face. The bird hates Jon because he killed Orel as part of the war between Wildlings and Watch. Tormund defends Jon, telling Rattleshirt to call off the Hellcrow, but Rattleshirt says, no, Jon is still the crow here, a spy in their midst. And there's a little line there I didn't even notice, but when uh, when Jeff was going through the synopsis, the way way George writes it, the way George writes Jon being able to see through only one eye is, half his world was black. And that's perfect, because he's half Mm. Night's Watch and half Wildling right now. He's only half with his black cloak. Mance is the authority that distinguishes friend from foe, having himself walked in both worlds. Tormund says, eh, John has to go, if it's Mance who wants him, and John hopes the wound he took from Morell's eagle will serve as evidence to Mance that Rattleshirt is the instigator, not him. But there's not one individual instigator, as we've been saying. All of this is a series of escalations, and not only among the living. The prologue to Storm of Swords ended with the cliffhanger to end all cliffhangers, as the others closed in on the watch camp atop the fist of the First Men. That has cast a pall over the political proceedings ever since. As with the White Walkers in the prologue to Book 1, we know the Game of Thrones, unknowingly, takes place under a growing shadow. Winter is coming. That lends a dramatic irony to Jon's identity struggle in this chapter. While he hopes that Mormont will attack to free him from his spy mission, the reader already knows that a far worse enemy descended on the Watch. And now we see the aftermath. Mance is waiting for Jon atop the fist. On the way up, John sees evidence of the supernatural attack, a dead horse with his guts ripped out. It can't have been wolves, like those Arya encountered down in the Riverlands, because those eat their kill. This was something outside the food chain, outside the state of nature that Tormund and Egret prize so highly. This was something more profoundly other to John's experience <laughs> than giants riding mammoths could ever be. And I, I have a question for you two gentlemen in terms of story structure. Do you think it works that we see the aftermath of the fist before Sam's chapter, showing us directly what happened, or does George kind of ruin the suspense? Is he tipping his hand too early here by showing us what happened?
0: I personally think it's a hundred percent effective. I mean, narratively speaking, we know we're not at the climactic battle where the others are defeated. Come on, this is book three of seven at this point. Even if you're, or book three of six when George is writing the Storm of Swords. Subconsciously we know that the others are going to win the battle at the Fist of the First Men. Even if we get even if we get to Samuel's story and see glimmers of hope in Sam's memories of the battle, where he's like, ah oh, yes, we pushed them back, we're fighting them, we're beating them. They breached the wall, we're fighting them, we're running, we're lost, all is lost, 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 lost. So the outcome of the Astormosaurus prologue is never in doubt. What this scene, though, does and does better than most scenes, is communicate the dread of what of what occurred at the fist in the past. What actually happened that led to this carnage? And what was the outcome here? Beyond that, it's simply chilling to see the aftermath of the others. Killing for killing's sake, via the horses and the dogs that John sees, those things are visually disturbing. George, I think... And this has been something we emphasize over and over in this chapter, but George wants us to feel the emotions here in this chapter more than the major plot elements and plot movements. And the emotion he wants us to feel here is horror and dread before he pulls back the curtain and reveals what happened. And so ultimately, from a narrative perspective, this is part two of that threefold reveal structure that George is so fond of. Sama one, of course, is our third reveal. And boy, what revealed that is going to be.
2: I can only second that. The prologue, even if at that point you didn't decipher the rule that prologue characters die, communicates <laughs> very clearly that something bad is going to happen. Drawing out the reveal that Sam survived, that every, uh, anyone survived, is incredibly effective. As Jeff describes, this scene is only giving us glimpses. For John and us readers, this should be a detective story in which we decipher what happened. However, that doesn't work out. Man's already knows, and his detective plot is paramount here. He gives John, and by extension us, very little chance to decipher much, which is left with an incredibly bad feeling, which puts us into John's headspace. Like John, we have to adapt on the spot. We can't just ask ourselves who died, can't have too close a look, because Mens poses the much more pressing question, are you a spy? One misstep here, and John is dead. The dead have to wait.
1: Totally agree with both of you. I think you you definitely zeroed in on why this works. George is still keeping us in suspense about who survived, even if he's not keeping us in suspense about what happened. Specifically, Harma says that they found less than 200 bodies out of the 300 or so that were present. John even singles out Sam in his thoughts, wondering if he's a zombie now, priming the reader for Sam to take over as our POV on that storyline. Another reason I think this works is that that the Sam chapter, that first Sam chapter, it flashes back to the fist. It tells it all in past tense. And so there is still present tense drama occurring in that chapter, especially Sam killing a White Walker. So there is more to that chapter than just revealing what happened at the fist. And also, yes, as Stefan was saying, George's focus in this chapter is not the slaughter itself. He doesn't describe it at length. We see a couple dead horses. We hear about pink snow, which is just enough to make us shudder and just, you know, imagine more than he's writing. As Mance says, what happened is obvious. The Watchmen died. The focus in this scene is instead on what this means for John's spy mission, following up his complicated relationships with Tormund and Egret. After all, John's cover story to Mance was that he came north of the Wall just with Corin Halfhand and his men for seasoning. He never mentioned the force of Watchmen on the Fist, so Mormont would have the chance to lead a surprise attack. But it was the Watch who was ambushed, leaving behind evidence that John was lying, calling his loyalties into question. John doesn't know how to navigate this situation honestly. How can he be true to Watch, Wildlings, and himself simultaneously? It's such an intimate moment in the heart of, like, the literal apocalypse. Mance <laughs> reminds John that this inner conflict has always been with him, calling him the Bastard of Winterfell, and saying, Your brothers died which is also the news John will get about Winterfell when he returns to Castle Black. Your brothers died. In, this, in that case, it's Brandon and Rickon. He has no time to mourn, not for them and not for Egret. He has a battle to fight at Castle Black and soon men to lead. And the same dynamic works here. John has no more space to process the hideous fate inflicted on his comrades than he does to deal with his scarred face. He has to immediately put on a different face for Mance. You must not balk, Corrin told him but this doesn't stop John from feeling craven. It feels like he's doing his duty and betraying it at the same time. As he thinks, how do I play the turncloak without becoming one? And when he tries to hold back some information, Mance threatens to give him to Rattleshirt, the Lord of Bones as Mance calls him, an emblem of death like the fresh dog's head on top of Harma's
0: spear. You gotta give John this. He is intensely brave in this scene, holding out information for as long as he did. And yet, at the same time, what is the goddamn point of holding out information? Sure, John might be worried that Mance Raider will make an attempt on the wall knowing that Bowen Marsh is in charge. But really, the only thing that happens as a result of John telling Mance this information is that Mance tells Radisher to keep everyone moving, which is what they were already doing all along. John was willing to give up his life for those who are already dead to die here having not completed his mission. I, I understand this, of course, John feels like he's betraying his oaths, that he's truly becoming a turncloak by giving up intelligence to Mance but really, John, you gotta do some more studies on your Spycraft 101, that book I sent you in the mail. You can give up small amounts of information, useless information, in order to maintain your cover as a spy. Giving up the name of the Commander of the Fist, telling Mance that Bowen is in charge of the wall, these are small pieces of essentially useless information. Beyond that, since LC Mormont's survivors are small in nature, there's only a small party that survived, they have a better chance of reaching the wall before Mance Raider, which is what a few of the survivors do. They do get to the wall well ahead of Mance Raider. Ah, sure.
2: But John is all about existential struggles <laughs> and existential <laughs> victories. He's a historic. It doesn't matter how effective his betrayal of his vows is, what matters is the betrayal. John still tries to walk a fine line, as little betrayal as possible. That makes little sense, as you say, but that's where his head is. John never wanted to become a spy, never to break his vows, and he tries to keep as much of his integrity as possible, even if no one will ever know, even if it doesn't matter shit, because in the end, he knows. It's also why he will later confess to having slept with Ygritte, despite no one being able to prove it or even care, really. Why he will confess to everything and never weigh what could hurt him and which parts he might be able to keep a secret. It's about the existential victory of it his presence his feeling as a night's watch man his own character integrity basically and it doesn't matter who knows uh, he just has to keep it and that Mm -hmm. makes him a bad spy (laughs)
1: exactly (laughs) And Egret too, is kind of compromising her position within the wildland camp by sticking her neck out for John. She saves him over and over again. She helps him when the eagle attacks. She accompanies him to the fist when she doesn't have to. She defends him for lying to save them that were his brothers. And finally, she lies to Mance about having sex with John. These actions put her in danger, as she well knows. If John proves faithless, she could suffer for having stuck up for him. That's what he thinks in a later chapter. They'll put Igret to death as well for the crime of being mine. It's a demonstration of a personal loyalty developing across, and despite, the political gaps between them. It already led her away from Rattleshirt's band. Egret specifically tells Mance that John fucks her beneath the cloak Mance gave him. It's a potent symbol that ties John's new life, his new face, his new skin, to sex and romance. That appeals especially to Mance, of course, because he left the watch due to romantic ideals, captured in the cloak that he chooses to wear. So who is he to separate two hearts that beat as one? Mance wants to live life like a character in the songs, although he balances that passion with pragmatism, telling Stir to take John over the wall, make use of his knowledge, and if he proves to still be a crow, okay, then you can kill him on the spot.
2: (laughs) And here, the chapter comes full circle where stories are concerned. It started with a story in the song, and it basically ends that way, although in a wildly varying spirit
1: yeah John is starting to recognize the cost of crossing that gap and what it means to to play as someone like you're in a story versus to actually be one. John has to give up his brothers to stay alive and finally make a tangible commitment to his new life. Deeds are truer than words. The end of the chapter is powerfully ambiguous on one hand, it's written romantically, right Ghost leaps up to defend Egret, she flirts with John and she's bashful for once she's blushing, she's vulnerable and intimate on the other hand. John basically has no choice except to sleep with Ygritte now, and there is something disturbing about that dynamic. Their entire relationship is founded on dishonesty. It can't last. They can send Ghost away for now, but he will always come back, a silent reminder that Jon Snow is the bastard of Winterfell, and he's not from up here. As Jon thinks, beyond the wall, you lose sense of who you are. That's part of what makes it so tempting, though, You know, we wouldn't have so many doomed romances as a species if we didn't, at some level, like that sensation of being doomed and unable to help ourselves.
0: That's why we love those type of Romeo and Juliet type stories where you have doomed star-crossed lovers who just end up failing or dying at the end. And I do agree. It's just a masterful conclusion to this chapter that is both deeply romantic and unsettling at the same time. One more step. One more dishonorable act. One more treason. Just one more. And I can go back to being the Honorable John Snow of Winterfell again. John already feels like a traitor. Like he dishonored his brothers that he betrayed them. He killed Half Halfhand through Ghost. He turned in his black cloak for the sheepskin cloak that Mance that Raider gave him. He informed Mance... Uh, he informed Mance about information about what the watch was doing, however useless that information is, on who was in charge of the Night's Watch on the Fist of the First Man and who was in charge back at Castle Black. And now he is on the verge of sacrificing his virginity to keep his mission alive. You were talking so well earlier about how John has this self-loathing for himself as a bastard and how his desire not to sleep with the grit is rooted in that as much as in keeping to his vows. So what does George do in response to John's interior character conflict? Why he cranks attention on up to 11 for John, forcing him to engage in a self-loathing action that should send him into a tailspin of despair, right? This should be John then going into a serious depression. Except that it doesn't. John 3 from A Storm of Swords has one of the most romantic scenes in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, Johnny Grit's scene in the cave. And John finds that despite his feeling that he's betrayed his oaths, he... Loves Ygritte in that, as I was saying before, Doomstar, cross-lovers kind of way. As Ygritte says in John's fifth chapter in Storm of Swords, it's just one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Song of Ice and Fire. If we die, we die. All men must die, Jon Snow. But first, we'll live.
1: I love that that moment of tragic romance. And it almost feels in a way like Egret is... Making peace with the sadness she felt while singing Last of the Giants, which is all about death and passing away. She thinks, okay, but that is, that's universal. That happens to everybody, so at first, you just have to make sure your life means something along the way. Moving into foreshadowing and groundwork, Mance has this hilarious little moment when he hears that Bowen Marsh was left in charge of Castle Black, and he goes, okay, in that case, the war is pretty much (laughs) over. We've got this. And yeah, Mance turns out to be right that Bowen is an incompetent commander. He falls for Mance's feints, leaving Castle Black with only a handful of ragged defenders under Donal Noy. But of course, that just makes it all the more romantic when Jon manages to lead them into at least a stalemate against Mance's far more numerically superior forces.
0: It is kind of funny how like Bowen Marsh is built up. This kind of bumbling, dum dumb, like throughout, like the early books in A Song of Ice and Fire. But at the same time, he is brave and he takes a serious wound while fighting the wildlings at one of these various points. I can't remember the exact spot on the wall where he fights the battle. And then he comes back as kind of this being this much more developed character in *A Dance with Dragons*, as we'll get to in a few years. And I think that's a it's, it's a fun, interesting dynamic for for Mance Rayder, uh, rather excuse me, for Bowen Marsh that we get this kind of incompetent dude who uh, <laughs> kind of comes across as a much more complex character when George revisits him in *A Dance with Dragons*, which is something that I love. So one of the uh, the, the things here is we have grit talking about jumping into an icy water is is fine. Well, you could do it without clothes, and then you could just warm each other up afterwards, right? Well, boy, doesn't that become the central part of Johnny Grit in the cave in the next John chapter in A Storm of Swords, John 3, where they're both naked in the water. And then, of course, they then cuddle up with each other and have uh, lots of many sex in the uh, in that chapter, which is, again, one of the most romantic scenes in all of A Song of Ice and Fire.
2: It also goes to show once more just how much is in this chapter. You know, uh, it, all the time when you mention, like, they have the sex in the cave in the next chapter, and after that it's already over the wall, It it feels like so much is happening. Right. And it's all in a space of one chapter. It's incredible.
1: Agreed. And I think people have, I think, with with reason criticized John's chapters in Dance as not having that kind of feeling of momentum. For me, and I think this is something I know we've we've all talked about from time to time, that it works for both John and Danny in dance that it's deliberately not exciting for them as they want it to be. And John is continually trying to like get back to this these moments of fear but also excitement and like you know jumping with egret into the water in the cave and how wonderful that felt and it turns out you know being in charge of an institution is just like counting things all day and trying (laughs) to make sure you have enough of them left over and that's yeah that's uh, that there's a very very big contrast in terms of the tone and structure of john's storylines between storm and dance and i get the critiques but i still i still love both
0: I love those as well. It's one of my one of my favorite dynamics from from *A Dance with Dragons* is John's story and how it kind of is a slow moving tension builder. Mm-hmm. So you you had mentioned earlier about how the dishonorable killing of Mance Raider by John might foreshadow events with Danny at the end of *A Song of Ice and Fire*, but there is a far more proximate attempted near dishonorable murder in John's feature as John will consider murdering Mance Raider under a truce banner at the behest of Jeno Slim, Alistair Thorne, and their cronies uh, in, a, in *A Storm of Swords*, John Ten and he is only saved from this action by, well, first he he negotiates and realizes that Manstrator might have a point, and they can negotiate, but then, of course, Stannis Baratheon arrives to save the day at the Wall, <laughs> heroically liberating everyone, doing nothing wrong in the process.
2: We have another nice parallel to Jamie Lannister here. It's incredible. This is the third time I find a parallel between Jon Snow and uh, Jamie Lannister in this chapter, but uh, just imagine if he would have been rescued by a timely intervention like this, you know? It, it, imagine him in the Red Keep, killing Rosser <laughs> And at the same time, Armory Lodge is murdering Aerys Lannister. How different would his life have been <laughs> if he had been delivered from doing the bad deed himself like John is here? Um, basically, he would have been the hero that John later is uh, b- because fate intervened, basically. And John would have died, uh, died a reviled death if he had killed uh, Men's Under the Peace Banner. So uh, sometimes luck and happenstance really does a lot. But uh, to get one uh, one final thing uh, in for the foreshadowing, the song uh, with the last of the giants, which is sung in the hearing of Mag the Mighty, uh, of course already uh, foreshadows Mag the Mighty's fate because he will die in the assault of the uh, on the wall uh, when he crawls into the tunnel uh, and then kills and is killed by Donald Noy. And uh, many more wild uh, giants are dying in these final battles against Stannis and uh, during the assault on the wall. Their number is even more diminished. And it seems to me like George is indicating that their number number is now finally diminished beyond repair. Like some like Wun Wun are still left. Uh, but it is not enough to uh, to sustain the population, let alone grow it back. I feel this attack on the wall is the last hurrah of the giants, basically, and um, this makes the song even sadder.
1: Uh, yeah, I, that's a great point. It might be a parallel to the dragons in that way that their their assault across the Narrow Sea, Westeros, in the other direction, is going to be the last hurrah of the dragons. And just as, you know, there's if we see it similar to in the show where Drogon flies off and there's a, there's a hint of, you know, one more but not enough to sustain it, maybe, that's, well, maybe that'll be the mood if Jon goes beyond the wall at the end of the books like he did in the show and maybe he'll think to himself, I wonder if, you know, if there's still any more giants out there, maybe only a few, and that kind of bittersweet sense of everything passing away.
0: You know, it's interesting. In, in A Dance with Dragons, John in negotiating with Tormund giants Bane has the giants and the mammoths, says they can't really pass through Castle Black, given that the, uh, the tunnel is damaged. And where right. is he sending them? He's sending them to Eastwatch by the sea, which, if you believe the show's version of where the others strike, where the White Walkers strike, they strike right at Eastwatch by the sea, which is, I could see a potential... Occurrence in *The Winds of Winter* or *Dream of Spring* of the Giants arriving at Eastwatch just as the White Walkers also arrive there, and yeah, I think that would be a devastating moment where you have one one being the very last of the Giants while the rest of his his clansmen mm. and fellow uh, fellow Giants die on the White Walker attack on Eastwatch by the Sea. So that'll
1: take us to our theory and discussion portion of the episode, and we already talked about Torman 's story of the she bear as showing us you know something how, about how wildling culture works and that his way of talking about John and Egret, but there 's a theory that there 's something else there's a yet another layer to Tormund's story here, and that there's the theory that the she bear he 's talking about is actually Mage Mormont, a woman of House Mormont whose sigil is a bear. And uh, Tormund says that he saw the she-bear running around with a couple of cubs, and Mage Mormont has kids. We don't know who fathered those children, so that's the theory that that ties it all together, that Tormund actually fathered uh, Mage Mormont's kids. So what what do you think about that theory, Stefan?
2: I think it's a nice idea, but (laughs) it doesn't really work for me. The Wildlings don't use the allegory of Westerosi heraldry. They would seem to be more accustomed to Illyrio's disdain for that. And on the top, Daisy looks nothing like Tormund. It's it's a nice idea, and it's one of those theories where it doesn't really matter whether it's true or not, which <laughs> makes it okay in my book. Mm-hmm. Um, but but <laughs> right. I uh, but I don't see... Yeah, I mean, it's not like, uh, oh, Rhaegar Targaryen is secretly Man's Raider, you know? Um, <laughs> but, um, but this... Um, I, I don't know. I just don't see it, but I wouldn't be heartbroken if it, uh, if, if George somehow uh, approved it uh, in, in some reading or something.
0: No, I, you know, you know Stefan, I've always gone back to the episodes you and episodes you and Sean did a, a couple of years ago about theories when you went through all the various theories. And the, the major point I took out of that was like, whether it has an impact on the narrative or whether it's just kind of like, Oh, that's cool. Or that would be a major, Whoa, Bowman in, in the narrative. And I, I think I'm with you in that it doesn't really have an impact on the narrative. But also wouldn't be kind of a whoa moment either. It'd just be kind of nice, and really wouldn't like kind of like interrupt like the themes of a song of ice and fire that George is communicating. I I, I am a little bit more positive towards this theory, um, and and I can make a case that Daisy Bormont might not be. Uh, descended from Tormund Giants. Maybe she might be from uh from from the from the umbers but anyway well, well, uh, well that might be another discussion someday down the road I do think it's interesting that the more that Daisy more excuse me that uh that Mage Mormon is described very similarly to the she-bear that Tormund encountered here in in Storm of Swords John 2 whereas Tormund says a fine strong woman with the biggest pair of teats you ever saw she had a temper on that one for her but oh she could be warm too and Mage Mormon is described thusly Mage is a hoary, old, snark, stubborn, short tempered, and willful. So I do think that there is some interesting commonalities in the way that the She Bear is described by Tormund and how Mage Mormon is also described. And there's also this, this theory that goes with this as well that Mage raised Tormund's daughters, Daisy, Alisane, Lyra, Jarell, and Liana, while Tormund raised the sons plus Munda. And Lady Gwyn of Radio Westeros fame and has been on for a couple of guest spots, on a guest spot here, she raised the point on Westeros.org back in the day that this kind of explains the large gap between all of Mage's daughters, that there were five sons and a separate daughter in the mix as well that kind of fill in the gaps. Because what is it? You know, Daisy is in her 20s and Lyanna is like nine years old or eight or nine years old. She's pretty young when we catch up with her in A Dance with Dragons. And then uh, like the final piece is kind of like more of like a fun thing more than anything else and... I don't know if it's true or not, but there is something from the the Throne show where Lyanna Mormont is fighting in Winterfell. I mean, it's a ridiculous fucking scene, and I hate most of all the, the Lyanna Mormont stuff from Game of Thrones. No offense to everyone who loves that stuff for reasons I can explain another point. But Lyanna Mormont ends up as a giant slayer or a giant's being from season eight, killing the other giant in her final act, which may be a subtle wink by the showrunners to readers that Lyanna is Tormund's daughter? Question mark? Question mark? I don't know. That might be a huge stretch, but I do kind of like the idea that the showrunners would just be like, hey, book readers, you're never going to get a Dream of Spring. Well, you probably won't get a Dream of Spring, but hey, I'm <laughs> going to give you a nice little wink there of what the uh, the ultimate uh, – a some, some little little book connection that we, we really couldn't feature in Game of Thrones. But here, you can have this. I wouldn't expect this to be a theory that ever gets
2: resolved in the books, frankly. Even if it was true, uh, I doubt uh, that it would be resolved uh, in a definite way.
1: Yeah, it, it, because as Stefan said, it doesn't really matter. Like, the Mormonts are secondary characters, and so is Tormund. They're, it's not as crucial as, obviously, something like the origins of John or even the origins of Tyrion. I like I like the idea of, of Lyanna killing the giant as a wink. Like, maybe, the, you know, the... The list of, of of things that George spoiled the show winners on that he gave, he, he, the facts he gave them. Maybe like last on the list is George was leaving the room. Oh, but by the way, uh, the Mormons could are all Tormans. Bye! That's his last, <laughs> that was his last little reveal after he got through the important ones. I, I think, yeah, I, 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 I like this theory, even though it doesn't make a great deal of logistical sense. Like, you know, obviously Torman is, is telling a fable, he's allegorizing this a bit, but like, you know, uh, more mage Mormont is not, in fact, a Tormund's neighbor. <laughs> like it would, re- it would require some serious work to get to Bear Island, and um, yeah, Wildling raiders have come there before. But the Bear, uh, the Mormonts seem to have dealt with the Ironborn more recently than than with Wildling mm-hmm. raiders. Uh, I have a healthy amount of skepticism about Tormund, like getting onto Bear Island and then getting into Mage's bed and then leaving and then coming back and communicating and all the things that would be required <laughs> to like split up all the family like this. It's it's not super reasonable. But I love how well it fits into the kind of the the bittersweet romantic aura of this chapter and kind of these characters as a whole. That Tormund had his had his his own star crossed lover, but he's not bitter about it, and he's not resentful, and he's not ha- he's not not even haunted. He's just like, yeah, that was just part of my life, and maybe that's <laughs> maybe that's a healthier attitude to have than a lot of the other characters we see in the story and how the, how they deal with the, with the past. So agree that this, yeah, it, it's it's not it doesn't have ironclad evidence behind it it's not super crucial but it's one of those those layers that you can you can kind of add to the story just to kind of enhance the emotional experience of it and i I like those minor theories for that
0: yeah i like it too i I like these fun theories they don't have a major impact on the narrative but they also don't fly in the face of the themes of the narrative too and you know if I, i like your point too emmett that you know there's a possibility that this is the healthy way to look at like your long past loves you know George, you referenced dying of the light before, which many people have seen as um, George kind of dealing with some of the past breakups, and not quite a healthy way. In, in the in the case of of Dirk Talarian to to Gwen, as a, as a, maybe someday we'll get to cover it someday down the road. But uh, but here, it's kind of a healthy way to look at your 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 past life and your past people that you were in love with. Is that, yep, that was something that I did. Had some good times, had some bad times. I'm an old man now. Everything is just flowing along in my life anyways back mm-hmm. to us attacking castle black and <laughs> so i think that's going to wrap us up for this analysis of a storm of swords john two thank you so much to everyone for listening and thank you stefan for joining us for this episode it was, it's been a blast having you on if you have the chance please please rate and reveal snap a podcast google pod class google podcasts spotify Podbeans, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com
1: slash natacastasoiaf. You can follow us on Twitter at natacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at natacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at poor Quentin on Twitter. And Stefan, you want to tell people where they can find your stuff? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Stefan Sasse, and you can find the Boiled Leather Audio Hour at patreon.com slash Leather Audio Hour. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words. Septon Meribald, the Shoeless Sage. Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood. Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Sir Way, of course. Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Sam K, Wisdom Benjakut, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan. Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping. Lord J. Manderly, Baker of the Fray Pies. Hodinus, a prostitute. Lady Silverwing, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Donatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, and Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes. Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, Not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planet Society, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, James of House Keen, Lord of the Forest City, Admiral of the Cuyahoga and Warden of the Western Reserve, Lady Can of House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine, and Sir Andrew of H-Town. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies. Yeah, thank you,
0: folks, so much for your support. It means the world to us. So, join us next week for a Storm of Swords Sansa 2 in which nothing is abyss. Sansa is just getting a new beautiful dress from Cersei. Wow, good guy, Cersei. Who knew? And we'll be joined by a brand new first time guest, Sarah Skilton, who has an excellent book that she'll be able to tell you all about next week. And so, that's going to be a lot of fun. Can't wait for Jeff's favorite
1: chapter, of course, in all of us, Song of Ice and Fire. And yeah, it'll be great having a new guest on, uh, Sarah, with us. That'll be a lot of
0: fun. Cannot wait. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to our patrons for supporting us. Thank you most of all for Stefan for joining us. And we'll see you next week for A Storm of Swords, Sansa 2.